All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Artist of Motion podcast. Mr. Terry McCourt grew up in Huntington Beach, California, and started training in 1982 with formal training in several arts. He studied karate, Aikido, and later found his calling in the arts in the American Kempo lineages. Today, he runs American Kempo Consulting out of the great state of Texas, USA. His personal expression has evolved into Direction Method Weapon, or DMW Kempo. He's got a great notation system, which he has introduced and taught successfully for several years, internationally in seminar and private lesson formats. He's on the line with us today. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm stoked to be here on the show with you. Well, it's um, it's kind of a new thing for me. I'm, I've got a, an ego or whatever, but it's it's a different thing when you said, hey, would you like to do this? I'm like, yeah, sure. So, you know, here we are, and I'm not nearly as impressive as maybe that sounds, but um, it's all good. I mean, I'm, I talk a lot, so it'll be okay, I think. Well, the tagline <laughs> for this podcast is everybody's got a story, so we'd love to hear yours. So in that mindset, yeah, I gave everybody just a real quick overview. How about telling us where you started and take us through to where you're at today? Okay. Um, well, so like you said, I grew up in Huntington Beach, and this was back when you know, you, the, you see the pictures on the computer now, it's like the meme and stuff, where you see all the bicycles in front of, you know, a house, and that's where, you know, all the kids are. Well, I live next door to that house. So I grew up, and in my little group of friends, we had probably 10, 10, 12 kids that we were playing with all the time. And next door to me was Ted and Mike. Ted was my age, Mike was a year older. You know, this is the house everyone hung out with because we could get away with stuff. You know, this is where... This is where we grew up, and this is, you know, what I think a lot of the kids today don't have is that, you know, when it was light, you turn, you know, open the garage door, grab your bike, and take off, and when it was dark and the lights came on, you know, you better get your ass home, and so it was easy for me because they lived next door, um, but so we moved there in 77, I guess, so, you know, I started in third grade with them, and we had, a big, like I said, we had a big group of friends, but um, in 81 or 82, um, Bill decided that he wanted the kids to get into karate. My parents were all for it. I was raised by my mom and my grandparents. My grandfather was a school teacher full-time and then a police officer. He was with Newport Beach for 17 or 18 years, 18 years, I guess, and then with Los Alamitos for 17 or 18 or 19, something like that. He was a cop for my lifetime. Um, but, you know, he always, we moved from one part of Huntington Beach. I would have gone to Marina High School, uh, but we moved to another part of Huntington Beach. So I go to Edison because Edison at the time had the best football in the country for high school. Never been a football guy. I, there's a couple guys I've met that are, I like, but in general, not really my thing. Um, but so anyway, um, Bill talked to the parents and said, hey, we want to go and put the kids in karate. Are you guys interested? So he said yes, and he said he'd pay for it. So we all hopped in, I think it was Ginger Celica. We had like eight kids in this little Celica, and it was it was miserable. You know, everyone's sitting up on top of each other. The windows are up. There's no AC. But we walk into this karate school, and um, the style was Robokai. It was on Beach and Talbert, I think. And Beach Boulevard's like a main thoroughfare through Huntington from inland all the way down to the, the coast. And so we went in and we watched the class, whatever, and we signed up. There was myself, Ted, Sean, and uh, Mike, Ted's brother. 
we're the ones that actually signed up. Sean dropped out after a little bit. Mike dropped out after a little bit. Ted and I continued. Um, but we went, you know, we were underneath um, the instructor. His name was Yukiyoshi Maritani. And he had just come over from Japan. And Robukai, you'll know because of its head instructor in the United States. Um, he was the guy, if you ever saw Conan Varian, the movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, there was a, a small scene where um, he's learning to use a sword from a samurai. And that samurai was Yamazaki Sensei, who was the head of Robokai. You know, during the week, we would, you know, someone would drive us up there. And then we got a little bit older and we started riding our bicycle. And it's, I don't know, a couple miles away. So we would, you know, initially we'd ride our bicycles like through the, the neighboring tracks, one track to the next, cross the line, next track to whatever. And then we'd get to the, um, the house and we started getting older. We started riding back and forth on Beach Boulevard because it was faster, but it was also more dangerous. And then we got cars and started driving ourselves when we got 16. And then, you know, by that point, we were been going to the beach for years too. And I'd started bodyboarding um, probably about the same age as I started karate, so 12, 13. And then by high school, I was bodyboarding competitively and whatnot. And that's that's a different topic. That's kind of not this, but, you know, all through high school, I, I um, surfed and I bodyboarded and whatnot. I went through um, the NSSA, which is um, National Scholastic Surfing Association. And so in my high school group against Edison, where I went, Huntington, Ocean View, Marina, and I think Fountain Valley had a team in there. We competed all, you know, so every morning we'd wake up, we'd go down to the beach for surf class before school. And then we, you know, my hair was usually wet most of the day because you'd surf in the morning and you'd go to school. And then we, my high school is really close to the beach. So we'd go surf at lunchtime and then we'd come back and then we'd go surf after school. And so it was always, you know, a beach thing. But the karate thing was cool too because we were able to, you know, fight in, in my friend's front yard. So we'd spar and everything else. So by the time we were 17, 16, 17, we stopped going to the karate school. So we were, I think, third Q, third, fourth Q, so green belt, brown belt kind of thing. And um, we were sparring in the front yard, and that was just kind of the way it worked. We had a kid down the street that was – we were kind of, you know, arch nemesis kind of thing. He was a year older and a little bit bigger. And so he'd always jack with us when we were kids. And whenever Mike, Ted's brother, was around, he'd, you know, back off. But if Mike wasn't around, he was always, you know, six inches taller, four inches taller, and, you know, 20 pounds heavier. So he always wanted to be a jerk. And so one day we're sparring in the front yard, and we had um, our sparring gloves on and our foot pads and stuff. And the bully comes pulling up, and he wants to, you know, he wants to box. And I'm the target. So, okay, fine. Don't like the guy anyway. So, yeah, let's throw, let's, let's go. And what ends up happening is that I kept throwing, like, left, right, and wanting to throw a roundhouse kick or something. And he got pissed off because I guess I tapped him once. He's like, oh, screw it. Put it all on. Let's go. So we put on the foam gear. And this was, again, this was probably right around the time all the foam dip gear had been created. I mean, at least from my point of view, it was probably 85, 84. No, this was... So this is 83, so 83, 84. And so we start sparring and all of a sudden he hit me. I mean, and those gloves are not necessarily very padded. So I got 
punched pretty good. And out of instinct, I threw a kick and I cracked him in the ribs. And oh, that's when the fight started. And then after a while, he got thumped. And parents were going to all come out. But Bill and Ginger were always the type to let us just kind of handle our own stuff. So turns out later, I found out that they were all watching from inside the house. Like the neighbors had come over. My, like my parents were in Bill and Ted's house looking out, watching us go and just to see how this was going to work out. And, it, you know, he went away for a couple of years. And then by the time we, I saw him again, now he's a foot taller because he's really, he was really tall. And, you know, there was no more animosity because we'd grown up to the point where, you know, I didn't back down. So I got tired of getting picked on. So that kind of evolved away. Let's see. Um, so by that point, I was doing NSSA contests. I was getting sponsored, um, getting free boards, free wetsuits, you know, all the stuff that goes with it. My parents weren't very um, – they didn't make a lot of money. So my mom was a waitress, and she uh, – then my grandma worked at J.C. Penney's. My grandfather was a school teacher and a cop, so there wasn't a lot of, a lot of money. And so when it came to, like, friends that were wearing like polo shirts and alligator shirts i was wearing stuff from jc penny hunt club so the the, the idea of getting sponsors was pretty cool because i could get cool stuff and not have to have my parents pay for with money they didn't have but um anyway so maybe i guess it was probably after high school i started competing more seriously um i made the u.s amateur team in 1989 with kelly slater Rob Machado and a couple others to for a spot to go um, to compete at the World Amateur Contest in Japan. I had my red, white, and blue wetsuits and everything, but I, my parents couldn't come up with the cash to help pay for the plane tickets to get over, so I didn't get to go. So that was kind of a bummer. But um, you know, I knew where I what I've accomplished or whatever. And then at this time, I'd gotten into Aikido, so this is probably 1990. I was going to junior college and one and Ted had gotten into Aikido and told me about the school that he was going to. But in order to get to the school it was one of those kind of, you had to know a guy thing because you'd register at the community college and you, if you train at the community college, they would invite some people like the, the, the Aikido class at the community college was like a yellow belt. And so if you graduate the yellow belt, you know, if they liked you, then they would invite you to their school in Irvine. And so I got invited to go train with Ted in, in Irvine. And, um, you know, I was competing and I got a job at Fleur Daniel, which is my profession. I design oil refineries. I'm a piping designer. And so by that time, I was on the PSA, you know, the Professional Surfing Association of America doing the U.S. Pro Tour. I was sponsored. I got a job that was like going to be a profession. It turns out that um, we were at a contest in, let's see, uh, Salt Creek, which is Laguna Beach. And we had taken some kids out in the water and we were clinic, you know, how-to kind of thing. And got done. I brought some of these kids in and I took them behind, like in the scaffolding where the contestants only and stuff, and introduced them to a bunch of people. So they got autographs from Kelly Slater, Rob Machado. These are all you know, big name surfers. Kelly's gone on to be a like eleven time world champion. He's he's the goat of surfing. Um but back then he was just a kid named Kelly. And turns out that um 
my coach at the time had told me that Fleur Daniel was hiring drafters. So I went and took this test. I was on my way to the surf trade show in San Diego. So I had a Toyota pickup and had all my stuff like crammed in the, the little cab. I had to borrow clothes. I had to borrow khakis and a shirt because I didn't wear that kind of stuff. I went in and, you know, there was 200 people that were taking this test. And there were these people in three-piece suits. There were people in, you know, khakis and shirts and polo shirts and all that kind of stuff. They were my age. They were older. Um, so 200 people took the test. 90 people passed the test. And they were looking for 25 people for paid training. And it had drafting. It had a little bit of um, trig. It had a bunch of, you know, distance math, you know, eighth of an inch, quarter of an inch, you know, feet, you know, construction math. And so um, as I was going through the test, they gave us a trig wheel. Well, I got D's and F's in algebra as a freshman. So I barely grad, I, I barely got through algebra. And then as a sophomore, um, I got like A's and B's in geometry. So I really like geometry. So as a junior in high school, I went back into algebra to try to get like a better grade. And I got straight F's. I just couldn't understand it. And that was just problematic. Um, so anyway, I, you know, they gave me this trig wheel and I didn't know what to do with it. So I did all the tests, all I could, all the drafting I burned through and did all the math I burned through it. And then I couldn't do these five questions. So I gave it a once over. So okay, I'm done. I walked up to the instructor and I went to show it and give it to him. He's like, Hey son, I'm sorry. I can't answer any questions. I said, well, I don't need you to answer questions. I'm done. And he looked at it, and he looked at me, and he flipped through the pages. And, well, why don't you do these these five questions? I'm like, I don't know how to. I just, I don't, that's math that's beyond me. Can I go now? And he looked at me again and said, yeah, okay. So I went back, and I was in the parking lot changing out of, you know, the khakis and stuff back in the pair of trunks and T-shirt and unloading stuff into my truck. And I was out there for probably a half hour. And no one came out after me. I mean, by the time I left, and then a couple days later, I got a phone call at my girlfriend's house or apartment, I guess, in San Diego, that they wanted to interview me. They wanted to give me a job, so I had to borrow clothes and went back up. And there's a bunch of people that were waiting in line to um, to do the whole interview thing. And I walked up, and this lady goes, "Okay, oh, hey, you can go in." And then I'm like, "What about these people?" I'm like, "Well, no, you go in next." cool you know so i went in i walked in and this guy was sitting there looking at me he goes hmm do you surf yeah a lot of people where i grew up surf i mean it's, it's a common sport he was like no do you surf professionally yeah i do okay cool you can start monday and what i found out later was that his son he was the head of the piping department and the head of the um, engineering office, their two kids were the two kids that I've helped in the water. And it turns out that um, I have the career that I've had since 90, 91 because I was good to someone's kid, which, you know, karma is a good thing. Um, you know, That's see. awesome. Um, well, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where, I've had some friends that they're always trying to, you know, we met some people when we moved to Texas that were actually from California. Um, but when you're, you're always, they're always trying to scam someone. They're always trying to get, some, get ahead. They're always trying to make some kind of deal. And the problem with that is that I watched this 
I mean, no less than I think three times where they, they, they worked a deal to get a new set of tires. And then a mile and a half down the road, they blew out three tires driving over something in the road. And I just, you know, I learned karma and karma is very, <laughs> karma is very true. <laughs> if you screw people over, you get screwed. So I've tried to make sure that I, you know, I try to be a good dude, but sometimes I can be a jerk or an ass or whatever. But um, by this time we'd gotten married and I'd been in Aikido for a bit. I liked it. And this was the whole Steven Seagal time. So it was kind of 91, 90, 91. And I got married in 93 and we moved to Lake Forest. And while I was there, um, we were at a gym one night doing like the whole husband, wife, gym, you know, gym thing. And there was a school, a karate school that was in the same complex. And so what I ended up doing is, you know, I told her I'd catch her at home because we got there with different cars. And I went up and I looked in the window and I watched this girl get grabbed in the hair. Like the guy, the instructor walked up, grabbed her by the hair and he started to yank her and she, her left hand went up, covered her hair. She shot his fist up into his armpit, knocked his arm away, which made her hit him with the left hand across the face. And she hammered him in the face and she hit him in the, with a, an elbow and she dropped him in the groin and he fell to the ground. And he got back up and um, it was actually, now I know it was clutching feathers. And then what ended up happening was um, he got back up through this big old roundhouse punch and she lit this dude up. And she used what I now know as five swords. And I walked in and I said, I want to do that. That's cool. For our non-Kempo listeners, those are two, I would call them seminal Kempo techniques in most lineages. They've got some variation on them, both of them. Yeah, and, you know, five swords, no matter what flavor, what branch you're in, everyone, I mean, five swords is pretty much fundamental. I mean, it's it's been called in any number of things, but... Five Swords is probably my favorite technique, and you can break it down into the nth detail or whatever. So I walked up, and I introduced myself. Um, the instructor's name was Scott Higgin, and he was teaching at a school that, um, you know, I said, hey, you know, I'd like to do that. So I got my first impromptu class with him um, between classes. He showed me, um, and again, it's been a long time, but he showed me um, blocking set. He showed me short form one. He showed me five swords. He showed me um, delayed sword and showed me how they were connected. And I was hooked. And so I signed up and started training with Scott. And then the school relocated from one part of Lake Forest to another. Turns out that the guy that owned the school was, I think, a blue belt. And at this point in time, um, we've been, I'd got my purple, I think I got, yeah, I got my purple belt. And then, um, Scott went to Hawaii for a trip and he, Scott had been, spent a lot of time in Hawaii and he was, um, a, a boat captain and whatnot, dive master and all that. So he was on one of those trips and the school had brought in, uh, an instructor, Ed Parker Black Belt named Ernie George. And I'd never met Mr. George before. And he basically came in and he ran a class and he was a hard ass. And I, what I found out, what I figured out later was that the instructor had found um, 
Aikido, and actually an Aikido brown belt that I trained with who was light years ahead of me um, had just gotten his black belt. And so this guy was going to switch his school from, from Kempo to Aikido. So he brought in Ernie George. Ernie George scared a lot of people. He wasn't a very big man, but he was intense. And then um, he basically told him, we're going to be in Aikido school now. If you want to stay, great. If you don't, there's a door. And Scott came back from Hawaii, and then we, you know, we kind of gypsied around. Scott's always been um, fluid in where he trains. He was in the Santa Monica school for years, you know, trained with Mr. Parker, trained under Larry Tatum. So his classmates were um, Speakman, Taba Tabai, um, Masood Saleh. I mean, all the all a lot of the notables, if not all the notables. I mean, Scott was there. He was with with all of that, and so oh, um, so he knows Lulu too, right? Oh yeah, I mean, so uh, yeah, that so Lulu's funny. Um, I met Lulu through um, Scott Higgins by knowing Scott Higgins through Facebook and whatnot. And when you reached out to me and said, "Hey, let's you know let's talk," and I'm like, "Cool, sure." And then you were telling me about how you'd like to get her on, and she doesn't feel that she's important i can tell you this dude i'm i've got a pretty big ego and i'm pretty good at what i do and and i know what i've accomplished and lulu would be someone i'd want to listen to because she was there i mean i got into kempo after mr parker passed same i've been fortunate enough that all of my students or all my my teachers have been students of mr parker's but lulu was there i'd love to and I talk a lot, so sorry. I'd love to hear, you know, what it was like from her perspective. Yep, she's you know, uh, one of the few that's still active. That was uh, respectfully female in a real male-dominated society at that point in time in the martial arts industry, and she was there for all of that stuff. So she's got tons of stories that we just need to get her on the air for. Uh, you know, dude, I, I I'm trying, and I'll continue to try because I think that you know I don't know a lot of the names. I know Lulu's name. I know. Um, Barbara Hale's name I don't know what her name is now but I mean and then Diane Tanaka I mean to me those were the three ladies that I knew of in Kempo but I know there's more now I mean but back then those were only the only girls I knew of but they all each contributed you know and I think it's important uh, the reason why I'm doing this podcast isn't because I want to talk about myself because all my friends know my story but it's, you know, my daughter's 22, almost 23 now. And I recently did a podcast with a friend of mine that I served with. And I did it more so for her so that she could have something that she could, you know, listen to, talk to her friends about, you know, share it with her kids. And that way, you know, and that's kind of the same thing with this. I mean, I'm 52 years old now, so I'm not young anymore, but I've got lots of stories. And, you know, my story is important to somebody. Lulu's story is going to be important to a lot of, you know, a lot of girls because there's a lot of girls in Kempo that would love to hear, you know, one of the OG that were there when Parker was on the mat. Yeah. Yep. She's got stories that I never could possibly have because Parker passed before I got involved. So, I mean, I don't know. Um, again, I'm rambling, so. Lulu, I hope you were interested. In, to... I hope you were listening to this particular episode because I'm going to keep bugging you until you agree. So there you go. So uh, moving, <laughs> moving us back towards your story, uh, I, we talked about you got sponsored and then talked about getting into your career because of the people you had helped and all the good karma and whatnot. 
How did that take you into, you found Kempo after Parker passed, uh, working with Scott Higgins. How did that take you from that point to today? Okay. Um, so I trained with Scott Higgins and Scott and I would kind of gypsy around. He, he's well-respected. He's well-known, you know, and I didn't realize how big Kempo was. I, I, there's a couple of things and this is going to kind of take us off track, but it kind of covers back the history of all this is that um, when I, so Scott found a school that he was going to teach at that was over in Costa Mesa off of like Adams and I think it was Harbor. And that's when I started teaching. Um, I got to teach my first class. I started teaching junior classes, the kids classes. And by this time um, Scott and I would go up to Tatum school. Larry was you know, really, really welcoming. Um, and again, I, I'll say it this way, because uh, I'm a first name kind of guy. I, you know, I respect all these guys. I don't mean disrespect by using their names. It's just I, I'm not, I'm not very formal. <laughs> so, um, but we would go to to Larry's school. We would we went over to uh, Masood's school. I don't remember the roads, but I want to say it was West Hollywood. We went over to Muhammad's school. I met a bunch of people that Scott trained with. Um, two things that I didn't realize how close I was to Kenpo was that one about the time I was sparring with that guy in the grass we'd met a, a kid I went to school with he was Iranian and one of my friends that I grew up with his mom was American and his dad was from Iran so when all like the hostage crisis thing was going on when we were kids we had problems with a bunch of other kids that didn't like him because he's Iranian and so this guy's name was Michael Unessi and we weren't really friends because he was very brash, you know, very standoffish. And again, the time was different. It wasn't like, you know, we're all kumbaya. It was, there was a lot of animosity, but I didn't know this until he came over to the house one day. We were on the front yard. He went to Bob White's Kempo school, which Mr. White's school was just maybe a mile from my high school. So, you know, we, he was like, we went one way. We went, inland to the Robokai school and instead the Kempo school that Mr. White has and he still has is just up the up the road from where my high school was and we were sparring and Mike was doing B1A and I'm like hey we don't do that and that's when I realized that there was other things out there besides you know Japan Karate Do which was kind of an interesting enlightenment and then flash forward so now it's probably 94 and I'm teaching at Scott's school, or it's not Scott's school, but someone else's school, but Scott's the head instructor. And um, my mom, I told my mom I'd gotten back into karate, but I didn't tell her what style or whatever else. And so um, class is finishing up. All the kids are leaving. It's, I think it's Saturday. So it's like, you know, there's going to be adults going to happen, you know, in a half hour or maybe an hour, but we got like a break or whatever. And my mom walks in and my mom sees all the kids going out she sees me and my gee she looks over and she sees a picture of mr parker up on the wall and she throws out a salute and i'm just and i'm i'm gonna throw an f-bomb for a second so you get ready to edit this out but i was like mom what the fuck and she starts laughing and at me because i'm now in shock and i don't know what the hell's going on it turns out that she knew who parker was because there was a lady that i knew when i was growing up her name was coco that's that's what my mom called her. She was a big Polynesian girl. She was six foot, 
probably 300 pounds, but her and Coco went all the way back to high school. And so they would ditch school and they'd go up to one of the Ed Parker schools kind of close to Huntington. And so my mom knew who Ed Parker was. And now I'm pissed. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) there was Bob White's. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, so again, this is one of those things where if I would have started in Kempo in 1982, I'd be a 10th now. I mean, and again, rank to me is not necessarily as important as it maybe could be or should be or people might think it is to me. But it's one of those things where, you know, if I would have started Kempo Karate in 1982, 1981, I would have been doing that for a very long time now. And so, you know, I come to find out that the reason, you know, I went to this karate school I did, I was like, well, well, honey, that's where your friends went. I figured you want to be with your friends. But she knew what Kempo Karate was, and she'd, you know, she'd watched, I guess, Trejo teach classes. So she knew, she named names. It was, like, just shocking. And I was a bit pissed off. <laughs> yeah, that had to have been a, so, a major uh, mental check moment for you. Oh, sure. Because it's like, you know, my mom, you know, she's she's passed on a long time ago. And this one was God rest her soul kind of things. But she wasn't, she, she, she had me when she was 16. So she got pregnant when she was 16. She had me when she was 17. By 18, my mom and dad were divorced, and my mom was a waitress. She wasn't – she didn't graduate high school. She wasn't – she was really sweet, and, you know, she would fight to protect you and, and whatnot, but she wasn't highly educated. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll bring this one story up about my mom and move on because it's you, – if you're a parent and you're listening to this, you'll understand this. So we grew up in Southern California. We were close to Disneyland. So we used to go to Disneyland all of the time. And I remember when I was a kid, I was probably third grade, second grade, something like third grade, fourth grade. I was young. And so we went to, we went to Disneyland, and we were there, and it was time to leave. The electrical parade had gone, gone on, and everyone's migrating to the front. So my mom had told me when we were walking in, on the right-hand side, there's a magic shop. And magic is cool, and I wanted to go to the magic shop. So she told me on her way out we would stop by. So now we're walking back out, and I've got one of those balloons with the big ears. It was, you know, they had a couple different colors, red, blue, yellow, whatever. So I had a red balloon, and I've got this thing, you know, tied to my wrist, so that way I wouldn't be stupid and lose it. And we're walking through the crowd, and we get up on Main Street near the front, and I stopped to look in the window because she said we were going to go into the magic shop. She completely forgot. And I turned and walked in the shop and we got separated and she looked around she freaked out and then she saw a red balloon and so she followed it and she followed this thing all the way out the gate and she didn't get her hand stamped because she was frantically i mean again my mom was 17 years older than me so she was young when all this was going on and so she got through the gate and then realized oh shit that's not my son Oh my gosh, she freaked out. So she tried to get back in and they wouldn't let her back in because she hadn't got her hands up. So my mom punched this dude in the face and crawled over the turnstiles. And now that had happened. And I didn't hear about the story till I was probably in my, probably my, and this is probably 20 when I was training and she told me this, this is what happened. But what ended up happening was when I realized I was separated, I did what every kid was supposed to do. I walked up to the first person in costume and said, Hey, I'm lost. So they took me over up to the front to like the lost and found room or whatever. So I'm in there watching Steamboat Willie with a bunch of other kids playing with little, you know, stuffed animals and whatever else. And then 
you had to walk up a, a small flight of stairs to get into like this trailer because you're now behind the scenes. And the door opens, and my mom looks in, but her, my mom's hands are not visible. And she kind of peeks in. She goes, oh, my God, thank God he's here. Yes, that's him. And the next thing I know, she comes walking in, and she's holding her wrists, rubbing her wrists. And I didn't realize at the time what had happened was she punched that dude in the face, and she got arrested. And when, she, when they realized that she was just a frantic young mother looking for her kid, the guy didn't press charges or whatever. And then they find me where I'm supposed to be, and they go running off. So my mom was always ready to throw down, and it, it was just a funny story. But anyway, so to quit rambling, so um, and that'll probably not happen. But we um, in '95, or I guess the end of '94, um, my company told me if I wanted to keep my job, they had a spot for me in Sugarland, Texas, and I was working for Fleur Daniel at the time. And I'd been married, I had a mortgage, you know, shit. I didn't know what else I was going to do. Um, so we packed up and we moved to Texas and I'm found it. My, we got to Texas, got to Sugarland, which is Southwest Houston. Um, wife found, um, an apartment and then she, you know, she flew home. So I was by myself for several months. And, um, then I started looking around trying to find Kempo or whatever. And I found a guy, um, online was not even a thing yet. I don't think. But I found a guy named James Smith, and he was teaching out of his garage. And I went over one night. You know, I'd been in Ed Parker Kempo, and now I go over to this Christ, and then this guy teaching Kempo out of his garage. And I know now where he was at in the Kempo world because he was doing Kempo. It's just not the IKKA stuff that I had seen. But at the time, I was, like, well, kind of snobby because I went over and watched, and one of his students is a guy named Jason Bug. And Jason was a a Kempo fixture here in, in town. Um, him and I, you know, trained a couple times together. We've talked a couple times together, you know, friends, frenemies, whatever, you know. Um, but there's not much Kempo here in Houston. There's only just a couple people over the years that have popped up or disappeared or whatever else. But so um, I started doing some looking and researching, and I, I called the IKKA and said, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm in the IKKA and I've just moved to Texas. Where can I go to train? And they kind of, we don't know who you are. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm so-and-so. I train with so-and-so. I paid my money. I got my patches. I'm in the IKKA. Well, it turns out that the guy who was running the school in um, first in Lake Forest and then the other guy that was running the school in um, Costa Mesa um, they were taking the money for the memberships, but they weren't submitting the paperwork to the IKKA. So I wasn't a member. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I didn't know any better. I didn't know anything about the Kempo drama or the politics or the BS that went with it. And Scott wasn't really involved in this because this was like the business side of things this guy was handling. So, so much easier now where things are so much more automated, so much more tracking. Oh, sure. And so I said, you know what? I don't think you understand my problem. I think I need to talk to Mrs. Parker. And so I'm sitting there, you know, I want to talk to your manager kind of thing. I pulled a Karen. <laughs> and um, next thing you know, he's like, okay, if you you sure. And it was now, now that I think about it, it was either Larry Kangaika or it was Ed Parker Jr. I don't know which, and they never, I don't think they said their name. And again, I'm shit with names. But um, the lady gets on the phone, 
and she just reads me the riot act. And she is going on and on and on about how I have no honor. Who am I? Because I named the names of the people I trained with. I you know, trained with Scott Higgins. I trained with, with Larry Tatum. I've been to Muhammad School, Masood School. I mean, these are the people that I knew that were in Kempo. And these were, I thought, heavy-hitting names. Well, it turns out these were people at that point in time were maybe not on the, in the best light and I mean, they're all, they've all been great to me. So this is not meant to be anything other than my perspective at the time was that they were on Mrs. Parker's shit list. Yeah. We're just and providing so, historical context at this point. Yeah. Right. And I mean, so now I'm getting the red, the riot act. Cause I mean, I'm trying to come to the source that like, you need to come to the source, man, I'm trying. And normally I'm a pretty easy to get along guy, but you piss me off and I'm pretty much a dick. And so I've got the arm, I've got, you know, this is back when the phones were still on the wall. Cell phones really are just becoming a thing, but we still got like the phone and maybe it's cordless or whatever, but I've got this thing at my arm's reach. And my, my wife at the time was like, is she yelling at you? And I'm just looking at her like, yeah. <laughs> so after, you know, again, and she went on for, I mean, I was on the phone with her for 30 or 40 minutes and 20 of those minutes I was getting chewed out. Um, but so anyway, she finally, you know, when she finally realized that I was trying to come to the source, I was trying to do the honorable thing. I was trying to come home, quote, quote. Um, she gave me a couple choices. I could go see Dennis Lawson, who was out of, I guess, Metairie, which is outside of New Orleans. I could go see Keith Gorham, who was up in Dallas or outside of Dallas. Or I could go to Corpus and see a, a guy named Greg Hildebrand who just moved from Vegas to Corpus. Well, I'm not big on alligators and I'm not really big on the whole redneck cowboy thing. And Corpus had waves and I could surf in Corpus. So Corpus it was. So I drove, uh, I, I reached out and called them, told them who I was, who, what, you know, what my bonafides were or whatever. And he said, Hey, you know what? Come on down. So my wife and I hopped in the car and we drove three hours from Sugarland down to Corpus and we get to the, you know, go check into a hotel and we get over, walk into the school and Greg has been teaching there for a bit. He's got um, white, yellow, and orange belts in the school. And, um, I'll, I'll prep, I'll, I'll finish this part of the story with this is that I walk in, he says, yeah, go change. So I go and put on my, my gi and my brown belt. And I was a purple belt when I left Texas or when I left California by material. But while I was teaching, Scott and um, was watching me spar or whatever, and we were sparring with some people, and it got a little quick and fast. And Scott basically said, well, what rank were you when you were in karate? I said, it was a brown belt. He's like, you know what? Go put a brown belt on. I can, and I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm not a brown belt. He's like, you know what? You're a purple belt in sequence, but you spar like a brown belt. Go put a brown belt on. I can teach you the rest. So, you know, that's what I did. And I told Greg when I walked in the door, it's like, hey, I'm, I, I wear a brown belt because Scott Higgins said to wear a brown belt, but I only have purple belt material. And Greg had said that, you know, Scott's his senior, and if that's what Scott said to do, that's what, you know, he's not going to argue with that. And so I show up and then start, you know, going through the material and I can do all the material that these, these guys know. And so I started going to Corpus. So I would go, I would drive from Sugarland to Corpus. I did it twice a month for two and a half years. So I'd, fly, I'd go down on like Friday afternoon, 
I'd go to Friday night class and grab, you know, grab a, a Subway sandwich or something and go to Friday night class. And then I'd actually stay in the school. Um, so I'd stay in the school and then Saturday we'd have class and Saturday afternoon we would, I'd get some extra training and then Saturday night we'd go out and go eating, drinking, whatever. And then Sunday I'd train for a couple hours and then I'd hop in the car and I'd drive home. So um, it became kind of a problem as a while as people went on because I was, they realized that I didn't have all the material that I should have being a brown belt. So they all started getting kind of snotty or not all of them, a couple of them. But um, what ended up happening then was, um, you know, they realized that, you know, I'm learning the material fast. And so Greg said that, you know, he accepts the fact that I'm wearing, you know, a brown belt, but he's not going to put another brown belt on me, another stripe, until he says that, you know, I'm now, he he quantifies it until he sanctions it, I guess is the word. Excuse me. So um, what ends up happening is we're going through, and for years and years, I'd go down there and train. And these guys were all getting six days a week of classes. I was getting six days a month. And to my knowledge, no one from the Corpus era, whatever, ever progressed beyond, I think, so Sharon Agold got a brown belt. And that's when I, so we were okay. We were in, um, there's a guy, a friend of mine, I haven't talked to him in a long time, him and his wife, Joey and Sandra Cardena. And Joey and Sandra had started in South Curious, which is this little tiny town south of Corpus. And so they would come up and they would train um, once in a while with Greg Hildebrand at the school. And so Joey had asked Greg to come down and do a test for some of his people because he hadn't gotten, I think he was a purple belt at the time. And so um, we were down there and we were doing doing the testing or whatever and and going through the class. And then um, after we after Scott, after Greg pr- promoted everyone that was, you know, they had been testing or whatever after they met what he felt was the requirements. Um, then he's like, okay, there's a couple more promotions I want to do. It's like, hey, can you go into the bag and get the belts that are left? And so I went over to his bag and there was a green belt and there was a first degree brown belt and a second degree brown belt. And so I grabbed, and when I say first, second, third, I mean like one stripe, two stripes, and three stripes. So there was a one stripe brown belt, two stripe brown belt, and then a green belt. So I grabbed the one stripe brown belt and the green belt and I brought them back to him. He goes, no, I need the other one too. So one was going to, to Terry Agold and one was, and the brown belt was going to Sharon Agold, who was um, Terry's wife. And then the third one ends up being mine. So this is now when Greg says, okay, fine. Now I'm accepting Now I'm going to sanction your, your skill sets match what I believe a second degree brown belt should be. Um, and then, um, Joey and, and Sandra have both gone on. They went in, got involved with um, the Karate Connection, Chuck Sullivan and Vic LaRue, and they've, you know, done great things. They've, considering where they started, I mean, it's so impressive that, you know, Joey is a doctor, PhD, I think, and Sandra, I think she they both got are. her master's. Yeah, or it's a, Sandra has her PhD too? Yep. That's really cool. I mean, and they're, 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 they're great people. And the fact that they've been at it for so long and, you know, I thought that I had a distance because I was trying, I was always traveling for my distance for my training. They were doing it, you know, through the whole video thing. And I remember watching them one time, I went, went to go see Speakman in San Antonio at 
Truett Wheeling School, and um, we came across them, and wow, I mean, it's different than what I was doing, but they moved well, and they've always been really great people. So, I mean, it was really neat to see, you know, that they continued their training. So that was really cool. And now I see him on Instagram, and he's always posting videos, and that's really cool too. I mean, it's social media has, is really bad on certain topics, but it's really cool because you get to see what, you know, people and your friends are doing and whatnot. And I've been really horrible about social media. All I've been doing is political stuff. I need to, you know, get off all that. But anyway, um, so for years I was going to Corpus and then um, UFC one happened and um, we watched that and we watched the sumo guy and the savat guy uh, we watched the, the Gracie guy. We watched the boxer get, you know, swamped by Gracie. We watched all this stuff, and we realized things had changed. And then um, one of our guys wanted to start fighting in Sabaki, and so he moved up to um, Denver. And so Greg moved to Denver, and, you know, he had really nothing that was keeping him in Corpus. He moved down there because there was a cousin or something, but he moved up to Denver, so I flew up to Denver to go train with him, and that's where I got to meet his teacher, um, Paul Mills. So the way I understand it was that when Greg and Scott Hildebrand were living in Vegas, they were prison guards, and they had trained underneath Dennis Kasser. And then they started – they got more involved with this, and then when Mr. Parker – again, this is the truth as I understand it. So – Parker was at their school when they were brown belts and Parker was at their school the weekend before he passed. So he was at their school. He trained for the weekend, did seminars, whatever, and said, Hey, I'll see you guys in February. You guys are my black belts. And then he flew home. And then that following weekend, he hopped on the plane with Leilani and flew to Hawaii and passed away. And so um, it was one of those things where, you know, so Scott Higgins had spent time with Mr. Parker, you know, and got a lot of exposure to all these people. And then Greg and Scott Hildebrand were people that had trained, and then they ended up falling underneath Mr. Mills. And so I got to meet Paul Mills for the first time at a seminar that was in, I think, Greeley, Colorado. And we went through, and I'd seen Mr. Mills. I'd never seen Mr. Mills before. I didn't even know who he was. And I thought I knew who the names of the people were, players. And it was impressive. But to me, what was more impressive than Mr. Mills himself was his students because a lot of people, you know, they train with Mr. Parker and they, they move well in each, you know, each their style, their, their lineage or whatever. But not only did Mr. Mills do what he was doing, but his people were moving just phenomenal. And so after the seminars, there was the black belts that were Mr. Mills' students, and then a couple, you know, a couple brown belts like myself and a couple others that were students of the students. And he had talked about, you know, retiring because of some of the stuff that was going on. And I'm not going to get into all that, but the simple fact was that that was when the AKKI was formed, at least from my perspective. That was when it, okay, fine, it's official. We're going to we'll do our own thing. And so. Um, I was in the AKKI from 97 until 2007, and a lot of the the motion and the way that I move 
I mean, is foundationally based on what we learned when I was learning training with Greg Hildebrand and then with Mr. Mills and, and then also um, Scott Hildebrand. Now, um, Scott Higgins gave me my base, and he and I'm, we're still friends today. And we actually reconnected um, in 2012 or 2010, 11, I think. But um, by that time, so it was 97, 98. We started doing the um, the AKKI material, and as it started to evolve, we started going through things. Um, I got my first black in '99, and then um, I ended up that year back in California for work. Um, work had changed, so I shifted back to California. I wrote a thesis on comparing I- American Kempo versus Aikido and um, Japanese Karate aerobicai. Um, and why someone would travel at a distance when there was a Shotokan school, which is really close to Robokai, and an Aikido school that was just within minutes from the place I was living. You know, I was trying to show what why Kempo was so much better. And then um, let's see, in two thousand, at the end, near the end of two thousand, work was slowing down. I moved back to um, Texas, but when I was in California, I was driving from Huntington Beach out to Las Vegas. Greg was living in Vegas again and working at a bar that was owned by Josh Lannon's father. Josh was originally a student of Scott Higgins and then was now a student of, you know, Paul Mills. And maybe maybe he was underneath John Herman at the time, but anyway, so we're all everyone in the Mills group. And so um, there was a guy named Ray Maynard and Mike White was one of Ray's students at the time, and they all wanted to get involved in the AKKI, so I was in, in Huntington, so they drove to me, and we all drove out, and we would you know, go out, and we'd spend a weekend training, and then we'd come back home, and then I continued to do the drive to Vegas for the year, and then I moved back to Texas, and then I had Greg fly out, and I had students at the time, so I had, you know, I'd pay for a plane ticket, feed them, and, and all that kind of stuff, and we were training out of my garage and that's how my school's always been is based on out of a garage. The, um, let's see, we get to, by that time, I guess it's 99. So my daughter was maybe two, she was born in 98. And then when we got into, um, I guess it was 2001, I was teaching out of of my house and my neighbor had, one of my neighbors had a daughter who had left her husband and moved back in with them. And I'd been working 50 or 60 hours a week and I my, was taking a nap, I took a day off. I was taking a nap. And my, my wife comes in and says, Oh my God, you got to help her. He's killing her. And it turns out there was, um, the car in the driveway next to our house had the door open and four legs were sticking out. So I threw on my pants. I was on my way out the front door. I went into my office. I grabbed an expandable baton and, I started getting into instructor mode, yelling at the guy to get off her. And I tried to grab the leg. I started trying to crank it against the the frame of the of the the door, 90 degrees the way it, to the way it bends. And then I started just hammering on his Achilles and hammering on his calf with that stick, and really didn't get a whole lot. Um, I tried, and what happened was, this guy had left, or she had left her husband. He had shown up. And was talking on the cell phone with her when she was on her way out the door to go to work. She was a nurse. So she's in scrubs. And he was on the side of the house closest to my house. 
and um, he had run out on her. And when she turned around, he had stabbed her in the like the trapezius and then the neck, and brought his and he was holding it shorthand, so as he was bringing it across her throat, she put up her hand to to kind of protect herself. He almost severed her thumb. And sorry if this is graphic, but there's a point to it. Um, he started stabbing her in the clavicle and stuff, and he broke his knife in her clavicle. She dove into the car trying to get away from it, started honking the horn, and that's what my wife had heard. He crawled up on top of her, so now she's in this. Uh, she's on her belly, her head's kind of in the footwell of the um, passenger, and he's straddling her back, choking her. And that's when I showed up. So what ends up happening is the stick stuff didn't work. I tried to um, get in. I tried to get out. I unlocked the door and ran on the other side of the car. I was going to open the door and cave this dude's head in, and that didn't work. Because as I went to open the door, he looked up at me and he was leaning up against the dashboard and he locked the door again. So I ran back around and I crawled in the back seat trying to hit him. But I mean, you're inside of a car and it doesn't really do much. So I got out of the back seat and I was going to pull out my knife. I was going, I had a plan and I, and this is all Kempo based. I mean, Kempo is a great art because it's taken me from being at some point, they probably would have called me ADD or hyperactive or whatever else. Um, but it allowed me to think about what I was going to do, how I was going to do it. I was going to um, take his thigh. If that didn't work, I was going to take his kidney. If that didn't work, I was going to take him from the back of the neck. And just about that time, the um, cops come pulling up. And now I'm wearing jeans, no shirt, with a weapon covered in blood. And I got cops pointing guns at me saying, put down the gun or die. And I can tell you, I could see the rifling of that dude's Glock from 20 feet <laughs> so um, I get on the ground the cops try to you know pull him off and I'm like I tried that they open the other door and they start trying to jack with him try to they, they hit him with pepper spray and you know going to pull the gun on him and I'm like you know I tried to do that too and then the gun the guy with the gun looks at the cop and the, the, the guy's like go ahead and kill me because I'm going to kill her and the guy says he can't get a shot and I'm thinking, change angles, shoot up. But again, I'm not. It wasn't my my call or whatever. And taking a life is a very, it's a very important topic that is not necessarily here. Um, but anyway, so it took three cops 15 minutes to get this guy off of her. She was in intensive care for days. Um, he ended up spending um, 13 years in prison. I had to testify against him in court and the dude, I mean, the, the judge, I was sitting next to the judge. I could touch the judge. I could have touched the box that the jury was in and the guy in front of me looked like Johnny Cochran and his two twins. So, I mean, it and I had to look over the, the court, like the judge's box in order to see the prosecuting attorney. It was really intimate and it was really sketchy. So, this happened where we lived, so we had to move because it wasn't like you, it wasn't like you intervened on someone's behalf out in just the public. You know, I lived next door, so we immediately, you know, got out of that house and we bought a house in um, Greatwood, which is a really nice portion of Southwest Houston in Sugarland. And so I was teaching there, and I was teaching there for years. Um, so I guess it was now. That was 2002, I guess. So now we flash forward, and now it's somewhere about 2006. And I've been to different seminars, whatever. There's not a lot of Kempo in, in Texas. 
there was one or two guys. Um, Curtis Abernathy was in Austin along with, um, oh, God, I'm going to go blank. Mr. Duffy, Brian Duffy, um, was in Austin. There was um, Truett Wheeland in San Antonio. Keith Gorham was up in Dallas. Um, and I'm really not sure. There wasn't really anyone else that I was aware of in the region. So Kempo in Texas was always a little sparse, or at least from my perspective. But um, Mr. Abernathy was hosting Ed Parker Jr. And by this time, I had started a company called Red Stripe International, and I was making T-shirts and stuff on Cafe Press. And so I was making, I made a bunch of artwork. and was putting stuff on Cafe Press. I had, I was selling T-shirts and mugs and all kinds of stuff with belt ranks and stuff like that. And so um, we go to see it, do a, a seminar with Ed Parker Jr. So I got to meet him in person, and he was really cool, really cordial, really nice, you know, really nice guy or whatever. And then um, we, at the end of the seminar, we went our, you know, we all went our separate ways. And in 2007, I left the AKKI. I'd gotten my first in 99. I got my second in 2002. And then by 2007, I was getting frustrated with, you know, how the dynamics were. And, you know, it's not necessarily promotion, but progression was, I guess, my biggest problem and, and how the dynamic was with some of the people involved. And so um, I basically started making my notation system because I was learning the material that Mr. Mills was developing before the journals were coming out. So we, we were learning the material, but there wasn't any journal backup. So I have heard of trying to figure out how to write notes. And I've learned over the years that when you're writing notes, your chicken scratch is legible proportional to when you read it. So if I wrote something on Saturday and I wrote and I rewrote it on Sunday, most of it, you know, 90% of it's going to come back. But if I wrote my notes on Saturday and I don't get to them the following Saturday, then that becomes a problem and you can't remember what the hell you were writing. Mr. Parker had done something that was brilliant with regards to the um, sparring system. Now, I never really learned how to spar from a Kempo point of view because I'd already been sparring for years before I got into Kempo. But he has the whole way of making things out with, you know, B1A. You know, you've got HK, RK, TSK. So there's a whole methodology. And, I mean, I think maybe you would be better to explain that to whoever, whatever two people might be listening to this podcast. But um, anyway, it's um, it's something that, you know, made sense to me, but it it was lacking in the ability to capture what direction you were going to strike, what um, what method you were going to use, hammer, whip, thrust, lift, um, then what weapon you were going to use and what target. So I started working through things, and I developed this thing. Um, as a drafter, I use AutoCAD, or at least I used to. Now we work in a 3D environment, but I use AutoCAD, and I made this kind of chart that um, had symbols and it had uh, um, an order where you would put what each, what you were doing in, you know, in 11, it was basically 11 rows and five columns. So 
so the 11 rows were you know labeled one to 11 and the columns were from left to right they were left arm left leg right leg right arm and then your stance and it was a way to take these pictograph symbols that i'd used i made symbols for stances for blocks for parries for foot maneuvers for strikes for kicks for elbows and to um work through the idea of how it all put together um i had a chart and i started to develop this chart and so i reached out to ed parker jr because he had developed the kempo cards by this point and you know my students thought it was cool they, they could understand kind of where i was going with it but it was kind of hard to see because of how it was laid out and whatnot and so i needed someone that i thought would be able to understand what i was doing and tell me if it was actually worthwhile or if it was just a waste of my time. And so I reached out to, to Edmund and asked him if he'd take a look at it. And he was like, you know, what do you want from me? And cause I guess, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that let's just say that I don't think that the community has treated him very well. Um, so with that being said, I think that's fair. what ends up happening. Well, yeah. And again, that's, He's had some interviews, and he's had, you know, Edmund's so much more smarter than I am. Oh, my God. He's more talented on almost every level. Um, but so what I did was I reached out to him and said, hey, can you look at this? And I told him, you know, you don't know me from Adam. You met me once. You, know, you did the Kempa cards. I respect those. I was hoping you could take a look at this and tell me if it was worth putting energy and effort into. And I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. Go ahead. You know, send it to me, whatever. I'll look at it. So it was maybe a week or two later um, and he went through and um, reached out and said, Hey, it's pretty good. I, I understand what you're doing, but it's kind of ugly. And if you, if you were to like rework it and make it more aesthetically pleasing, I think that it would be better. So I said, okay, cool. You know, whatever. And next thing I know, you know, I sent it back to my, I, I redid it on curl draw. And I kind of self-taught myself how to use the program, and I made it what I thought was aesthetically pleasing, and then I sent it back to him. And then he said what well, was probably the worst thing I could think of him, someone to say to me about this. You know, it would have been easy if he said, oh, this is ugly, this sucks, whatever. But he's like, you know, this is really good. My, my dad would have taken this. My dad would have put this in the Kempo system. He would have made this a part of American Kempo. And I'm just like, oh, God, now i got to do something with it crap okay so i started to to visit how i was going to do this and he's like hey um i'm going to be at the internationals so this is now 2007 i'm going to be at the internationals um why don't you come on out and hang out in my booth and you know make some of your books and we can show people so um my wife who never minded the money i made coming in which was i don't know two three grand a year five grand a year teaching she never minded the money coming in. She always hated me spending money. Me going to Vegas for, you know, three, four, five days a week and paying money for training and whatnot was always a, a case of the red ass for her. But um, I'm like, okay, cool. So I developed a book that was horizontal-based for um, writing techniques, and then I made one that was vertical for capturing, like, forms and sets. So it, it had a lot more. It had, like, 28 or 30 rows so i mean it, it made it so that i could do this so in the process of all that i um 
I went out there and I wasn't wearing, I did this specifically. I wasn't wearing, I'd left the AKKI at this point. Um, I wasn't wearing, or maybe I hadn't, it was right about the time I was going to leave the AKKI. Um, but I was, wasn't wearing any Kempo shirts. I wasn't flying any colors. I was wearing a canvas by Kate and t-shirt who was the company that, you know, I'm still, you know, really close with the owner and sponsored for all these years and whatnot. They paid for my contest and stuff like that. So I'm wearing Kate and t-shirt and, you know, shorts or something like that. And, Ed's introducing me to all these people. So I've got people from France, from Germany, from Portugal, from Greece, from Italy, all these people he's introducing me to, they're all friends of his, and they're letting me show them what my notation system is. And the cool thing was they got it because they, you know, here in the United States, we all speak English, you know, and English is kind of a standard thing. But in, in Europe and other parts of the world, English is second, it's not a tertiary, you know, secondary, if not tertiary language. So not everyone speaks English. And my notation system was set up in such a way that you don't have to speak English to do it. It's pictograph. And that's, I think, part of why Ed liked it so much. And so um, spent time in there and I showed all these different people. And then Frank Trejo comes walking up and he, hey, Uncle Frank, come here and take a look at this. And so I showed it to him and showed him how it worked. I gave him like my two minute spiel and he goes, yeah, well, uh, that's kind of complicated. Who are you with? And then we get into the whole, you know, my lineage. And that was, that was not what I was trying to accomplish, (laughs) but he wouldn't let it go. And I said, where, you know, what my lineage was. And that was a different conversation. Let's just say so. Flash forward, um, I'd left the AKKI, and um, a friend of mine who'd been in the AKKI before me, Kenny Gonzalez, had come out um, to my house, and we were doing seminars and whatnot, and I ended up getting um, elevated to my third. So I got my third in 2008, um, and then I ended up um, training in with, with guns and whatnot, because I'd been taught to race to shoot as a kid. But my training partner, Ken Coleman, and I had, and Ken's a cop, or it wasn't, or he's retired now, but he was a cop. And so we started training with Gabe Suarez, who was a firearms instructor. So we started taking all the Kempo stuff and trying to apply it from a, a firearms point of view. And then in the process of training with Gabe, he's like, you know, you should really, you know, you should train with a guy named Tony Nestor if you're interested in outdoor stuff. And Tony is a, a survival instructor, professional, that, that's all he does. He was at the time based out of Flagstaff, and he, you know he's also training with a guy named Tom Sotis. Tom is famous for his amok knife system, and so he's like, you should really, you know, Kempo guys, you should train with Tom Sotis. So Ken and I started training with Sotis. We we hosted seminars for several years here in Houston, and then in 2010 we became amok trainers. Um, there was two guys that were in Austin or outside of Austin, kind of Fort Hood area, and then Ken and I. And so we, you know, it was kind of a competitive thing where we were trying to host seminars and they were hosting seminars, but we were going to each other's seminars because we were trying to promote, you know, the knife material. So, you know, a lot of stuff I'm doing now has got a lot of, you know, foundational stuff that is based off of the way Tom Sotis teaches. And I found out when I was in the internationals in 2012 that Tom's well-known in the Kempo community. And I didn't know that at the time until I started talking, training with Tom, and he started naming off names of people I knew. Um, so I think it was, um, 2010 work had slowed down in, um, 
my field, which is, again, piping. And so I got laid off. And a couple months into my layoff, my students were like, you know, we should just open a school. So I had a guy that was um, really big into, like, audiovisual. He had lots of skills. So we – and he was good with money and figures and numbers and stuff. And then Ken was the firearms guy, and I was going to do the Kempo material. And we started working through all of this. And then what ended up happening is we got it all set. I got to a point where I took it to a bank and um, – had someone in the bank look at it and they basically said, this is really good. We like the numbers. We like where you're getting your money from. We like how you're not thinking you'd be millionaires in a year, but it's Christmas holidays. Why don't you come back after the first of the year and then we'll do business. I had a location picked out and everything. And so everything's fine. Um, then I get a, uh, found out that my old company was hiring again. So I reached out to, to try to upload my resume on the internet because that's now they, they've gotten to a point where you couldn't just hand it to someone. You had to go through like the online presence for equal opportunity stuff and computer wasn't working. I couldn't get the thing to download. So I reached out to my old boss and said, Hey, you know, I follow, I'm a rule following kind of guy. I, I don't want to cheat the system, whatever, but I can't get it to go. Can you take this and can you put this in front of the hands of the department manager? And he asked me what job I was you know, trying to get on, and it turns out that was the spot that he needed. He was trying to get filled. So um, he went to the management and said, hey, I want, I want Terry. This is the guy I want. I'm like, well, we got all these other people. No, I want him. And his name is Steve Rule, and Steve and I were friends for years, but he's always been a really good, solid guy. And so what ended up happening was he got what he wanted, and so they, they gave me an offer. So now I've got a job offer to work um, again. So it's been, I've been almost a year. And so they said, hey, you know what? You can start on, the, I think, January 3rd. Said, cool, great. And so now I know I've got a job coming. It'll make it easier to get a, a business loan and all that. And so I was at a neighbor's house, and he is a real estate guy. And we were talking about real estate spots because the spot that I wanted, I'd lost from a real estate point of view. So I'm trying to find a secondary spot. And he'd actually built some steel buildings and leased them out to like um, gymnastics teams and companies and stuff like that. So we were looking at building a building and it started pouring rain. And here in Houston rain, it rains a lot and it, it gets big. But what ended up happening was I looked out and his little boy is looking out the window and his, he wants dad to come read him a bedtime story. And my buddy's like, Hey, I'll drive you home. And I, I mean, honestly, I live, four doors down just around the corner. So it's maybe it, it's a, it's a two minute walk. It's a three minute walk. It's a, it's a one minute run. I'm like, dude, I got this uh, swatter. I'll, I'll get, I'll get my keys. Go in have story time. I'll do my thing. I'll talk to you later. And I turned and went to take the first step into a run and I popped my Achilles tendon and oh my God, it didn't hurt, but I could hear it. I could feel it. I, could, I couldn't I could put weight on my foot. And it was pouring down rain, and my buddy heard it from 15 feet away in his garage. Hello, game And changer. now I'm – oh, yeah, for sure. And now I'm sitting there. i got my hands on my knees. I've got one foot up, cut off the ground. I'm like, oh, crap. You know, and I can't get a job now. I mean, this is going to screw up the school. This is going to screw up work. You know, I've been laid off for a year. This really sucks. So I called my boss and said, hey, dude, I, I jacked myself up. 
um, I busted my Achilles. And the, the so by designing refineries, I work in an office environment. And I use AutoCAD, MicroStation, you know, PDS, which is three dimensions, and now Smart Plant, which is three dimensions, in like a virtual environment. And I lay out. So I don't, I don't build it. I'm the guy that lay. I figure out where all the equipment gets set. I'm the guy that takes the schematics and then I attach where everything needs to go and I lay out the routing of the pipe. So the process guys will, they'll figure out how big the pipe needs to be and in what order. So like they're, they're the ones that make the recipe, so to speak. Then you got the people that are going to figure out how to hold it up and then how to make sure it's not going to break. So I have to understand flexibility with metals and metallurgy. And so it, when pipe gets hot, it expands. So it's, it's expansion, contraction, all that kind of stuff. But I'm a drafter and designer, not an engineer. So, you know, I call my boss and say, hey, I jacked myself up. And I was supposed to be out in the refinery doing, you know, field work where I was going to be in the refinery walking existing pipes down and trying to figure out new routings by taking stuff out and replacing it. I can't do that now because I'm crippled. And he's like, well, crap. Um, hey, dude, I'm sorry. I'm like, dude, I understand that I lost the job. No big deal. No hard feelings. This is not your fault. Well, what this guy did was he went back to management, and we had a man who's passed on since, and this guy was really cool. Um, he was in a wheelchair. His name was Dean Hansen, and Dean was a PDS instructor, so he was the guy that taught me how to use the 3D program, and so he was on a job laying out piping, but because of his wheelchair, he always had people do the field work for him, so my boss pulled so pulled, you know threw down so much weight or so much pressure that the department manager started a new piping or a new PDS class so he could move Dean to teach that class so I could take over Dean's spot so he hired me when I was crippled and I wouldn't have gotten a job anywhere else 6 months to 9 months so that would have put me you know a year and a half to a year and 3 quarters out of work and my bank account was not having that so Steve Rule saved my ass. And so um, at this point now, um, I'm you know, stressed out. I'm now, you know, I've got a job again. Now I'm working. And then on Facebook, I see a post of, like I talked about Mike and Ted in the beginning of this. And so Ted and Mike had a cousin, really cute blonde girl. Turns out that she'd gotten married and, you know, we all grown up and she got married and her husband is an American Kempo. And um, I think his name is Strangeby. Um, I'd have to go back and it's been a while since I've dealt with him. But um, anyway, so I see he, um, he posts a picture and in that picture, I see um, Scott Higgins and I see Wes Idol and a couple other guys and they're all training over at, um, Oh God, what's his name? Brian Hawkins school. And, um, it's one of those things where, um, so strange me, I'm looking on Facebook. So, um, I, I reached out to, to her and said, Hey Gina, can you get with your husband and get a message to Scott Higgins? And it turns out Scott at this point had been teaching at Brian Hawkins school for years. And I'd lost contact with them when I moved to Texas. And now Facebook is now something I can use to track people down. So Scott and I reconnected and we started talking and whatnot. And it was really cool because I hadn't talked to him a long time. 
and then what ends up happening is that he's telling me how he's going to Ireland um, to teach, and he's traveling with um, Bob White, he's traveling with John Sepulveda, um, and it sounds like it'd be really cool, and then that'd be fun. And then he talks about how he's going to go to the internationals. It's going to be in Utrecht, Holland. I'm like, that'd be fun. You know, I'd like to go. You know, I'd like to go to Ireland. I'd like to go to Holland. He's like, well, come on. And so, you know, I kind of like tagged on and kind of imposed myself on this. And um, I'd never personally met Paul Dye, but Paul Dye was supposed to be one of the instructors. And I guess his wife had been sick, and he backed out. So I actually got. I was told I was going to be able to have a class. I could teach a class at the internationals. So it was really cool. I mean, traveling with Scott was cool. So I, I flew from here to uh, Atlanta. Scott flew from LA to Atlanta. We connected. And then we flew from Atlanta overnight to Dublin. And we got picked up by one of the Burgess brothers. So we land in Dublin. We're going through customs. I'd never traveled outside the country. I mean, I traveled to Hawaii and whatnot, but never outside the country. So I got my passport and all that kind of stuff. And, it was really international. It was really cool. And then we get through all that, and there is um, one of the – I think it was Richard Burgess um, is sitting there with a little sign that says, you know, Higgins and McCord. And I'm like, wow, that's us. That's cool. And so he picks us up, and we get in this little itty-bitty car. I mean, I think it was a Ford Focus. I mean, it was a tiny little hatchback. And we're driving, and we ended up going to um, – he took us to Maynooth. I think it was, or maybe we went to, um, we went to Downey school at Downey school, um, that night, but I think we went to Maynooth first. So we stopped in Maynooth, set up our hotel, whatever, and all started kind of coming in and, you know, got to see white, Mr. White and Mr. Sepulveda and whatnot. And then, um, we all went out one night, we all went to the local pub and we're in the pub and I see this guy and he's wearing a t-shirt that I made through Red Stripe International. And everyone's, you know, drinking and having a good time, whatever. And I walk up and say, hey, you're wearing my shirt. And that wasn't necessarily the right way to, to approach it because the guy had been drinking a little bit, as everyone was. <laughs> so it's not like he was, you know, he, he wasn't, you know, bad or anything. But he thinks, oh, wait, what? And he's, you know, I was like, oh, shit. No, no, sorry. The shirt you're wearing, I made. I designed it. That's my artwork. I'm Red Stripe International. And he's like, oh, and next thing you know, and now that he realizes I'm one of the American black belts that's come over, you know, for, you know, Mr. Downey and um, Sepulveda had had this, like, big European Kempo camp. And so everyone, you know, Mr. White, you know, so Bob and um, John and, and Eddie and all these guys are teaching. And so we're along for the ride. So, I mean, you know, do these seminars and stuff. It was really cool. And I get to meet a lot of really cool people. I got a watch a lot of guys that are really good at Kempo and they were they were doing things, you know, their way different than what I've seen or different than what I've been exposed to. But, you know, there's a lot of really hard hitting dudes and ladies for that matter. There's a there's a couple of girls that hit really hard. Um and so we were there for several days and we got a chance to walk around Manuth. It's a beautiful it's a beautiful college town. I've got a picture of a tree, just a random tree when we were on the campus. The campus kind of looks apart like Hogwarts, so there's a couple – we got some pictures inside, lots of pictures, like like all portraits of the old deans and the old you know, professors and stuff. And then I've got a picture that I use as a, um, a cover, like a screen cover, a screen – not saver, but like the desktop of this tree. It was really cool. 
But um, so anyway, we went through and um, we traveled there. And then while um, after that, we went to um, Utrecht. We landed in Amsterdam. Other people picked us up and took us to our hotel. And Scott was staying with one of the locals. I was staying at the hotel with a bunch of other people. And then um, Edmund shows up. And so I started hanging out with Edmund and Edmund's got to this point where we're friends and he's a really good dude. I mean, I, he's, he's a great guy. He's one of, I would say one of my better friends, if not one of my best friends from a perspective that we, he gets me, you know, I've got some friends that, I mean, that are really tight and I'm not going to sit there and claim that Ed and I are like, Oh my God, he's my best friend. I do everything. No, but Ed and I, we've, we've had some history and he's a really good dude. His wife is, sweet lady and she's beautiful and inside and out too so it's it was really cool but he wasn't married at the time or at least not to her but anyway I'm rambling so um I got to teach a class I was given a class of white yellow and orange belts and I was able to teach my notation system so I had a a poster I made that I used rolled up and I had it shipped over and so I got to teach this class and at the end of the class um, I guess they had went to their teachers and said, hey, this is really good stuff. Because I had people in my class that were from other countries that didn't speak English. So I'm having to try to explain this to beginners that don't know a lot about Kempo but also don't speak English. So that was a new thing for me. And then um, they approached me and asked me want to teach a second class. So then I got um, some purple, blues, and green belts. So I had a class of that. So I was in – that was cool. I'm all excited. So I'm sharing my stuff. And then those people went back to their teachers. This is really good stuff. And then I was asked if I wanted to teach a black belt class. And I, again, I've traveled this whole way to, you know, to, to hang out with Scott and to train with these people, but I wasn't, you know, expected to be one, like one of the main star instructors of the internationals. I was just, you know, tagging along and filling a hole. And this is all working but, with your um, notation system you developed, right? Yeah. And so, um, at some point, um, John Sepulveda reached out and or came over and said, Hey, you know, we're going to go sightseeing. Would you mind taking my class? I got a spot that you can use if you want. I'm like, sure. I'm, yeah, I'm excited. And so um, I'm now teaching this class and now I've got um, it's brown and black belt. So there's like 50 people, 60 people in my class, I guess. And I'm going through and I'm trying to be funny. And I, I, I've always been the comic clown in my class. Because when I'm teaching, if I'm the one that's being the comedy guy, then when I want it to be done, I can stop. Whereas if you've got that class clown in your class and you can't control him, then your classes get out of hand. So I'm always the guy, <laughs> which I think I'm funny, but, you know, that depends on who you're talking to. But um, so anyway, we're, we'll go through and the class is an hour. So now I've been teaching for three hours and it's now lunchtime. And one of the, the guys approaches me and says, hey, can we continue? Can we keep going? And I'm like, well, yeah, sure. I'm, you know, Kempo time is Kempo time and I'm down for it, but I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. And, you know, this is the time that, you know, when I eat. So they send off someone to go get me some food and go get me some water. And, you know, I, again, this is where, this is funny to me because I was such, such an American on this. Um, they give me this bottle of water and I'd been, and I talking a lot. So I just chugged this thing and I spit this stuff out because it was the nastiest thing I'd put in my mouth in Europe. It seems like they drink sparkling water, which to me tastes like a Sprite without any of the sugary syrup. So it's just carbonated water and it tastes like 
ass. And so I'm, I'm sitting there. What the hell is this? Yeah, and everyone's everyone's looking at me like you know somehow I'm offended them or something. I'm like, shit, sorry. I just what the hell is this? And um, they said, oh, sorry, you're American. You, you want still water? I mean, yeah, whatever the still water is. Yeah, I want still water. I don't want this crap. This is nasty. So someone came out and they brought me a sandwich real quick, and I I hooked you know, hoovered up the sandwich. I drank a bottle of still water, which I learned a very important lesson that night. Um, oh, and then they can drink. Oh my God! When we were in Ireland, after the seminars, I'm backpedaling. After the seminars, we were at a place called Mount Wosley, and oh my God, these guys were drinking. It was so much fun. It was so much fun to drink and talk tempo because the more you drink, the more you talk tempo, and the more you talk tempo, the more you physically do it, and the less control you have. <laughs> so people were getting smacked, and it was it was such a good time. Oh my God, I'd love to do it again. Um, I met some really cool people in Ireland. I met some really cool people in Holland. I met some people from around the world through what happened in Holland. So um, anyway, so we the class went for like two hours, and I taught a, a bunch of people. I showed them all the stuff I did. I used you know five swords or the way that I was taught and the way I do five swords in my in my notation system to explain how it worked. And um, so it was really cool to watch everyone start to get it. And I don't remember his name off the top of my head, and I should, but it's been a long time. Um, I had an A3 black belt walk up to me, and he goes, that was embarrassing. And this is after my seminar's done. He goes, that was embarrassing. And I'm thinking, shit, did I do something wrong? Was it, was it not good? And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. What you did was great. It, someone, I should have thought about this. This is this is good stuff. It's just, I didn't, I didn't think anything of this when I first heard about it. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll come take a look at it. And I realize now how how much depth this thing has, and this is really cool. It's, it's really good. And now I'm, you know, I, I give praise freely. I don't take praise for shit. I mean, I'm I like to, you know, give praise to people, and I'm always, you know, saying what a good job, whatever. But I don't take it for well. it's an awkward thing for me. I mean, I've got a big enough head. It's it's not necessarily easy to take praise from someone else when my ego is like, yo, I know I'm good, but then it's hard when people say it. Yeah, at least you recognize that, though. Well, you know, and again, I'm a lot of things. I can be a butthole. I can be a jerk. I can be a twit. I, you, and I can be, you know, a lot of things. But I'd like to think at least I recognize that I'm these things. Because I know people that think that their shit don't stink and that they are perfect or they're, they're God's gift. And I'm like, no, dude, you're not. At least I know. I mean, I know what I've done. And I'm happy with my accomplishments and I'm proud of the things I've done or, you know, the things that I've done with my life or whatever. But yeah, I don't take compliments very well. <laughs> um, so when we were there, one of the things that happened, um, so two days of seminars, two days of seminars are done. I only have a couple of regrets. One of the regrets I have in my life is I didn't um, try to cough up the money to go to the, the world contest for when I was on the circuit team. Because I never got to do that. And the guy that won, um, I'd beaten in other contests. So the potential is I could have beaten everybody. Because everyone else that was there, I'd beaten before. Uh, or someone that you know was equal to them in skill set, I'd beat them. And I would have been able to beat this guy. So I would have gotten the world title. I'm, I'm positive of it. But that didn't happen. So was, that was a regret because my parents just didn't have the money. And then I'd been going all nonstop. And then they said, hey, we're going to do a Friday night line. 
and I'm like, eh, I'm tired. I wish I would have stuck around because there's some video footage of everyone doing technique line. It looked like it was really fun. And everyone, you know, Muhammad was running it, and Scott popped in on a couple occasions. Um, Angela Colado was in it. And there was a couple guys that were from, you know, Holland and whatnot. And there was, it was a really good mix of people. And I wish I would have, you know, I, I kicked myself in the ass. I wish I would have stuck around for that because it would have been, you know, proof I was there. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, there was no doubt that I was there because I'm on the video. And that was kind of, that's a regret. I wish I would have stuck around. But I was tired, so I went back to the hotel. And then um, the upside to that was I got back to the hotel and connected with Ed. So we all were going to go out to dinner, all the instructors. So Ed drove in from wherever he was staying. And we all got in this charter bus, and they drove us into Tret like proper. And we got off at some restaurant, and we all walked over. And then, hey, let's take a group picture. And so everyone kind of stops, and I'm like, okay, well, shit, I'll do it. And I started taking pictures, and I realized, shit, I'm one of the instructors. I need to be in the picture because no one's going to believe me if, you know, oh, you weren't in the picture, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's pictures floating around with all these, you know, IKC instructors from 2012, and I'm not in them because I'm the one behind the lens. So I reached out to some stranger, like, hey, can you take this picture? And so then I went over and popped in, and by this time everyone's like, everyone's in their pose, and everyone's in like in their kind of nonchalant stance, whatever. And I'm like, my head's popped up in the corner with a goofy smile, like, hey, you know, I'm just happy to be with the group, you know. Um, but so anyway, so that happened, and then now I want to spend um, the time, you know, hanging out and socializing and stuff. So we go to eat, and my understanding is we're going to hit this place, we're going to start hitting a couple different places, we're going to get different types of food. Instead, they take us to one this little one little pub, and we get you know, um, we're all getting to the door, and everyone's kind of you know lining up. And so, as they all come in, they all get to this little shotgun kind of restaurant. They all sit and start getting like the good spots. And Ed and I are like the last ones to walk in because everyone. And again, I'll say it this way because it's going to come across shitty. However, I say it, there were some people that were highly impressed with themselves. There were some really cool people that were there in the group, but there was a couple people that were just, you know, and people I hadn't really met before. So, and that'll cause drama rippling from here on out to eternity for that. But um, as we all start walking in, they all start peeling off and they're in all these spots. Now the only spots left is this little shitty table, the very back of the restaurant. That's like a little card table. It's next to where all the food is. And so that's where Ed and I end up sitting. And Ed and I are talking, and he's telling me, you know, things that, you know, I didn't know before and some inner workings and dynamics and stuff. So we're hanging out. We're having a good time. And then the food starts coming out, and, well, shit, the food's right there. So I stand up, and I got some people looking at me like, aren't you going to get to the back of the line? And I'm like, dude, you put your pants on just like I do. <laughs> you know, when we're on the mat, there's deference because you've been doing this a lot longer, but we're two adults, and I'm hungry, and – I'm here, so I'm in the front of the line. So we got food and we ate and whatnot, but it wasn't like this big, huge spread like we were told it was going to be. It was basically a bunch of appetizer stuff. So we mowed on that for a bit. And everyone's now talking and they're all socializing their groups, kind of leaving Ed and I kind of to ourselves. Ed goes, You want to get out of here? I've been to Utrecht a couple times. You want to go hang out? Sure. So Ed and I left. And we figured we'd find our own way back because we were taking a bus, but he's all, don't worry, we'll be home. 
And so we went off and we went to another restaurant and we see some of Ed's friends. So now I'm getting introduced to some of Ed people that Ed calls friends that he hangs out with whenever he's traveling. And so we're hanging out there and we do around and we walk through a tread and I got to see um, an adult area that's in Amsterdam, which was kind of interesting. That was, you know, I was told that, you know, Ed told me if you stay in the middle of the road, no one will jack with you, but there's, you know, windows and doors and red lights on all sides. And when you say, Hey, if you stay in the middle, everything's cool. And you know, no one will, no one will come jack with you. No one will give you a hard time or ask you or whatever. So we walked through there and then we walked a couple other parts of the tread and then we ended up getting back to the hotel where everyone had congregated. Now it's a big party, kind of like going to the surf trade shows over the years and whatnot. And then, um, we all managed and we drink and whatnot, hang, have a good time and, you know, socialize and whatnot. And now it's the next day and it's similar, uh, the tournament's starting. And I don't want to sound like ungrateful, but I didn't travel halfway around the world to sit in a hotel. I wanted to go sightsee. I mean, because this wasn't, they didn't pay for me to be there. I'm on my own dime. So, I mean, I'd done two days of, of teaching. I now want to go see a tret in Amsterdam or whatever else. And Ed was going to come go with, and then I come up and find him at the event, and he's at his booth, and he's like, hey, I'm going to get stuck here. And one of the kids uh, or one of the ladies comes up and approaches me and says, Mr. McCord, right? I said, yeah, hi, how can I help you? And, and you know, my name's Terry, you know, just call me Terry. And she's like, well, you know, one of our kids is having a hard time, and the instructor is, you know, all the instructors are busy because now – the seminar, the tournaments, the seminars are done. The tournament's going, so all the kids are competing. All the people are competing from around the world, but all the black belts are now all involved in the inner workings and the the application of making the tournament be. And so, and I kind of begged off because I didn't want to judge shit all day. That's why I want to go to you know sightsee. But this kid's having a hard time, and so. She can't get to behind like the the barricades because she doesn't have the credentials. So I'm in plain clothes or whatever street clothes, and I start, you know, I see the kid. She points and waves, and he comes over and explains to me that he's supposed to be in sparring and forms at the same time, and he doesn't know what to do. And so, okay, well, um, okay, give me a sec. I'll go right there. So I go walk and past i go to like the entrance way and these these two blue belts and you know god love them one of them knows who i am and the other one doesn't and the one that doesn't know who i am and again i'm not important but i'm one of the american black belts that has been teaching so i mean i'm somebody and so i'm trying to get past this guy and the guy won't let me pass because my credential was handwritten by the guy who was running the event i didn't have one that was printed because i was only going to get one class so now this kid won't let me pass, and now I'm getting pissed off because I'm trying to do something. I'm not trying to you know, make you look bad, but kid, get out of my way. And so I start to walk past, and this kid now puts his hand on me. And when I was a kid, you know, one of the things we used to do is people would poke you. Now, I'm really simple. You poke me once, fine. You poke me twice, I don't care who you are. I'm going to hit you because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a trigger for me. It's, you know, that's what will set me off. And this kid, you know, pokes me. I'm like, don't do that again. I'll break your hand. So then I start to go past him, and he grabs me. And I whip around, and I catch him with two fingers in the groin, and I whip, you know, come up with a, like a shot to the neck. So it's kind of a sword and hammer um, variant. But I didn't hurt him. I just, pat. 
and he's now like just stunned. And I walk past him and I go and find out what, you know, get the kid and I take him to the main center judge. I'm like, okay, this is what's going on. This is the situation. Well, where's his coach? Well, his coach is actually his dad and his dad's a judge somewhere. So, you know, they said, okay, fine. Take him over here. Let him know that they're going to, he's going to do his form first and then he's going to go fight. And if he needs to do another version of the form and he needs to do it again, then we can go back and forth. So now the kid's handled. Cool. So they go back. Now this kid that I smacked is now all pissed off because now he's looked bad and now he wants to do something. I'm like, dude, really? So the one kid knows who I am, or at least knows what I'm, what I am. You know, the other one still doesn't realize I'm a third degree black belt, an adult male, and I'm an American. And this kid's now trying to be all like tough. And that was just an awkward moment, but I managed to get through that and went on. And now I'm cool because now I'm going to save the day. I'm going to go off. The mom, the mom's super happy. You know, the, parent, the parent's super happy. The kid's happy. You know, I'm going to go off and hit Ed. We're going to go off and go um, sightsee. And then Ed's like, well, I can't go anywhere. The people were supposed to show up and help me. I haven't showed up. Crap. I don't want to go out by myself and get lost. And next thing you know, that same kid comes running up. Oh, my God, you're still here. Great. I need your help. What now? <laughs> Well, so-and-so, you know, one of my friends, they were sparring, and they punched another friend in the face, and now she's she's having a hard time, and what do I do? So I go back over, and it turns out these two kids are from um, either the same school or rival schools, and one of them punched the other one in the face when they're sparring. It was an accident. It's karate. People get hit. But this little girl is in vapor lock. She feels so bad about hurting her friend that she doesn't realize she still has other events, so she's going to kill the entire tournament because of this one bad showing so i managed to, to convince her that it's okay don't worry about it everything's fine you know and get them to be where they need to be and i end up playing you know assistant coach to a group from utrecht and then a group from um exeter in england because i mean they were kids and that's what you're supposed to do i mean as a black belt at any tournament or any event if you're a black belt and you see you know you shouldn't be in a group of black belts working out you should be intermixed with all the white keys because that's your job it's your responsibility to help people that are underneath you because when i was coming up the ranks i had people who were above me helping me up and so i didn't know this at the time but i made an impression on ed because i didn't do what i wanted to go do and i went and what i needed to go do and then i made an impression on several of the black belts and several of the parents so now I've got people that were like, would love to have me come back and, you know, come stay and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I made some really cool friends and I'm still friends with some of them today. I mean, it's cool watching the kids grow up because now they're all adults. They're all, you know, some of them have careers already and, you know, some of them join the military. You know, one of the girls is, does, works on cruises. One of them, she's just gotten her nurse's certificate, I think. Um, one of them's had a child already. I mean, it's really cool, and I feel old. <laughs> um, well, yeah, but you're thinking but then, on that karma aspect, though. Imagine how much good karma you've gotten out of all this helping. Well, yeah, but I've been a dick to a lot of people over my life, so I'm pretty sure I'm probably somewhere square. <laughs> so it's not like, you know, it's not like I'm, you know, Bodhi Harma cruising along, and I've got, you know, karma just, you know, sweating off of me. But, yeah, the intent of all this is that, you know, there's some level of, you know, good deed or whatever. Um, so then, um, 
and Scott and I were talking, and Scott was convinced that I should have been wearing more than what I was wearing. So in 2013, I put on a fifth. Um, my, I've one of my goals in life, at least my goal with Kempo, was I always want to be a fifth. I'd seen how the people, the people that were fifths, were moving and whatnot. I wanted to move like that, and I wanted to be able to promote someone to third who could promote someone to first, like being a grandparent. And that's really been only that's only ever been my goal. I never wanted to be. I don't want to be a tenth. I don't. don't seventh. I, yeah. Fifth is good. You know, having a bar is cool. It means I've accomplished things. I can promote people, and you know, that's kind of just ever been my goal. And so that was in 2013. I went out and trained with Scott in Santa Monica for a bit, um, and then I flew out. I think it was 2014, maybe, and I and I. Hooked up with Ed. Ed and um, Ed was living in Apache Junction, I think it is. It's a suburb of Mesa, Arizona, and he had met a childhood sweetheart, and they had ended up reconnecting. And now it's it's Ed's wife, and she's like I said earlier, she's beautiful on the inside and out. I mean, and they're a great team. Yeah, she's a wonderful human being. Oh my God. Uh, so Bear's really cool. Ed and and Ed's unhappy. I mean, the concept of soulmate is something people talk about a lot, but it's a lot of you know a lot of verbiage. But by far, to me, I mean, I see them. They, they are they were meant to be together. And so um, I went out and trained with Ed, and um, and Bear was with us, and we went down to um, I think Tucson, and we were at Andrew Pilch's school, and I went through his. Um, Paxil program so I got my first little certificate my first level certification in the Paxil stuff because I think it's great and I think any school that has any any professional run school needs to have the Paxil program for the kids I mean there's there's no doubt in my mind no none whatsoever that that is by far an important aspect of what we do because you know while I like the idea of ripping a guy in half you know, the realistic side of this is it doesn't, you can't do that. I mean, if you have to do that, things are really, 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 really bad. And by that point, you are purely in survival mode. But if a guy pokes you, punches you, prods you, or whatever, unless they're trying to take your life or the life of a third party, you can't, you can't do some of the stuff that we do. So um, we did that. And then I brought um, my best friend, Ken Coleman. He's one of my students. Um, him and I went back in 2015 and trained with Ed and went through the Paxil program again. Um, I mean, and that's kind of, you know, I've been, and I've, at this point I've been teaching at my house. I've ranged from two or three students to 10 or 12 students. I've always fluctuated, you know, six, eight, seven, six, eight, ten guys, you know, on and off girls. I had, um, I've got a couple people that, you know, I started training when they were, you know, 16, 17, 18, and now they've, they're adults with families of their own. Um, I haven't promoted a black belt and that's, you know, Scott's been kind of pestering on me to, with all my, with my DMW stuff and everything else to, you know, look at trying to progress or promote or whatever. But I mean, Scott should be in my mind from knowing what I know about him and how he moves and else, he should easily be an eight um, based on the people that were around him when he was training and where they're at, where they're where they're at with their ranking and their physicality and whatever. So, I mean, Scott Higgins is a hidden gem. He'll get a big head when he hears this, but 
he's a hidden gem when it comes to his knowledge. Shout out to um, Mr. Higgins. He, yo, for sure. He's, he's, he's the person that got me started in Kempo. And so, you know, my, you know, my, my lineage is this. I started with Scott Higgins who, so it goes Scott Higgins, Larry Tatum and Parker, Scott intermixing with Mr. Parker over the years, whatever. And a lot of the, like a lot of the people did. Um, and then Greg Hildebrand to Dennis Knatzer to Ed Parker, Greg Hildebrand, Paul Mills to Ed Parker, a little bit of time I spent with Scott Hildebrand um, to Mr. Mills to Mr. Parker. And then when I got my second, that to me, it puts me in the lineage of Mr. Mills because Mills is the one that tested me. He's the one that promoted me and whatnot. Um, and so all the people that I've trained with that are been my direct instructors and they've all, you know, everything that I've done and I've learned how to do is all because of, you know, either Scott or Greg or Scott or Paul or whatever. And they're all great Kempoists and they're all heavy hitters. I mean, one of the things Scott would say is if it doesn't work, it doesn't work on a 250 pound Samoan, it don't work. And that, you know, it's, it's gospel. You know, one of the things that I learned from Greg was that, you know, no matter how hard you get hit, you get back up. You know, no matter what happens, you get hit, you get back up. And it's, you know, everyone's as tough as they think they are to some level, but, you know, it's getting hit like by a tank and being able to get back up, it sucks and it's hard. So like when I'd gotten kicked by Mr. Mills for my first, um, I got kicked by, I got, I got passed around. I got kicked by Greg Hildebrand. Then I got kicked by his brother, Scott. Then I got kicked by um, John Herman. I got kicked by Josh Lannon. I got kicked by a bunch of, uh, God, I got a bunch of people. And then Paul Mills came over and he, he gave me a kick. But then when I got kicked, my and, that, and it was one of those, okay, cool, here's a ceremonial kick. When I got my second, I got kicked and Paul launched me. Like I was up in the air and when I, when I rolled up, man, I didn't want to get up. <laughs> it sucked. It was hard. And then, you know, Greg and Scott, both, they were prison guards and they put foot to ass. I mean, there's a lot of people that, that learn Kempo and then have, you know, practicality or that they, how can I say it? So Greg always taught me that there was participants, practitioners, and applicators. So the participants, are the guys that show up and they go through their class. And there's the participants, the people that will utilize it, you know, when they need to in real world situations or whatever. And I find myself in that practitioner category. You know, I've had to use it a couple of times, but not, you know, applicator, you know, you're a bouncer, you're a prison guard, you are a policeman, you are someone that's using this stuff when, in, you know, I've done it in, in, you know, life or death situations, whatever, but not to that degree. And I want to make the, I want to sure make this point. I didn't make it earlier. When I was dealing with the guy that was stabbing his wife, I didn't do any Kempo techniques. Kempo was utilized, but not in the way that you might think. Cause I didn't hit him with five swords. I didn't hit him with thunder and hammers. I didn't hit him with anything, but I saw, I was able to analyze the situation physically of how he was at. He was on this woman's back leaning against the dashboard. So the concept of checking leverage and, and targeting is where Kempo just was there for me was that he was leaning against the dashboard so he couldn't turn to the left he could only turn to the right 
he was mounted on top of her, so he couldn't pivot anything more than where his, his torso would turn because his knees were like embedded, you know, beside the, the woman. And I figured out if I, if I took the thigh, that would get his attention. Or I could go to a kidney shot, which would get him undivided attention. And if I couldn't do that, then the throat would, would end him. So, you know, everyone comes to Kempo from different places, and they all learn different things. And they all take away different things. But I've had the privilege and the, I've been fortunate to learn from people that have put foot to ass and that have, you know, applied it to a level that, you know, it, it's not, I think it works. No, it works. I mean, the times I've used it, I know it works. I, I, I've done it. But again, I'm not a badass and I'm not, you know, I'm not a bouncer. Or I'm not, you know, prison guard or anything like that. I just train with some really hard people that were really intelligent. Because Kempo is not just knuckle draggers. It is people that can look at things and can analyze things and can break things down. And, you know, again, I've been fortunate to train with some really cool people. Um I mean, again, the rest of it, you know, you know, I went back to California in 2018 and I surfed for a couple of years while I was there, you know, for work, work slowed here. So I went there, I got to hang out with the guys I grew up with. Um, and it was really cool. Um, and then, you know, I came back to Texas in um, 2019 and after 27 years of being married, got a divorce and I'm statically happy. <laughs> Um, my daughter finished her bachelor's. She's going into her master's program. Um, when you reached out to me about this, it's like, Hey, you know, if there's anything you want to talk about, then by all means. And, you know, again, it, it, what kind of questions do you have for me? Cause I've been rambling. So, I mean, and again, I do this. So what kind of questions, what, what I haven't, what kind of questions haven't I touched on? You know, what's funny is I came up with like five or six as you were, as you were going. And like, as soon as I came up with the question, you started answering the topic, <laughs> which it does happen from time to time where, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm listening in, I'm having paying attention. I'm having a good time listening. Cool. I'm going to ask this. Oh, never mind. You already went there. <laughs> it, it happens more frequently well, than not, especially with uh, the gentlemen who are accustomed to talking and accustomed to being in front of people. It just, you know, you're storytellers. That's what we are. Yeah. You know? I mean, it, it's cool to sit there and talk story with your friends. Mm -hmm. You know, so when I moved back to California in 2018, work was slow. So this is, this is a, an important piece of my life, I guess, is that when I moved back to California, work was slow here. So I went out and took an, a spot at the company I worked for in Long Beach. And my daughter, who'd been gotten out of school or whatever for summer had um, decided she's going to road trip with me. So we road tripped across the country and, you know, my daughter and I have a close relationship, but she's always seen me as dad. And my daughter danced from the age of three until she was 18 and went off to college. Um, so we were, um, okay, here, here, this is a little sidetrack. This is to show you what a jerk I can be. So we were at a dance competition in San Antonio. My daughter was 12, 10, something like that. And they were getting beat in, the, in, the, in this event by these girls that were the same age, that were dressed like little strippers, and that were shaking their butts. And all the, the moms were dressed like hookers in the audience going, you go, girl, and all this kind of crap. And it was such a wrong environment. And so at the end of the event, you know, we're going down to collect our kids. 
you know, me and a couple of other dads are up here seeing all these, you know, moms with the cowboy hats, the cowboy boots, the Daisy Dukes, and like the checkered shirts, you know, Dukes of Hazard, I guess, was a thing at the time. And um, so we go downstairs, and uh, this is, I guess, to any dad that's listening that has kids that are like into like a, a female environment sport, whether it's, you know, girls soccer, dance specifically, or whatever else. But so we get down there, and they're getting ready to do the, um, the, the coach is going to talk with the kids and let, you know, talk with the parents or the coach is going to talk with the parents while the, the kids are changing. And the wives are like, Hey, Hey, here's the bags. Here's the stuff. Once you take the car, we'll be there in a few minutes. So we're getting dismissed and that, that'll piss me off. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, I paid the money. I'm, I'm the one that funded all this trip. So I want to hear what's going on because I don't understand why, you know, why our girls just got beat. I mean, they easily did what they needed to do. And this one, one of the moms is like, well, what makes you think you're qualified to understand any of this? And the teacher starts to say something. No, no, I I can answer this. Let's see. I did martial arts from the time I was 12. I did tournaments. Um, I served as an amateur for four years. I served professionally for four years. I've been teaching martial arts since I, since 95. Um, I understand body mechanics. I understand kinesiology. I understand anatomy. I understand timing. Why don't you sit the hell down and shut up because the adults are talking. And I used another word from there, but um, she looks at me and everyone else is like looking at me. The women are all like, oh my God. And the men are just kind of smirking. And she looks at her husband like, are you going to let him talk to me like that? he goes, you should sit down and shut up. The man's talking. And the lesson, and the lesson there is that if you, if you're involved with your child, no matter, you know, boy or girl, whether it's, whether it's a sport, whether it's an art, whether it is music, which, you know, is an art, but whatever that is, you really should be involved and not, don't let your spouse relegate you to being, you know, the piss boy. Because it's like, you know, I, I see this a couple of times where they, they go, oh, piss boy, clap, clap. And then the, the husband would come up, grab all the shit, and then slap it all off to the car while the mom was having a little social time and having a little their world. And, that, you know, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a team. So, you know, again, that was kind of a crap story. But so what ends up happening um, on the drive out? So my daughter and I are, you know, connecting. We're having a good time. We went to... I took her to SeaWorld. Uh, we went to the Wild Animal Park. We got to, if you ever go to the, uh, now they call it, um, oh, God, it's San Diego Zoo. San Diego Zoo um, it used to be called the Wild Animal Park. Now it's um, something else. It's not the San Diego Zoo, but it's, it's part of the San Diego Zoo system. And it's basically like Jurassic Park. So there's animals that are free roaming in these big paddocks. And you would normally would take this big tram that takes you around the edges. But we, I paid extra to get in the back of this like steak truck, and we were in the back and we were driving them through the savannas, and we got to pet rhinos, and so the rhino came up. It was like, it was like we were pulled in this area, and this woman whistles and she's all, he's like a dog, and this two thousand, three thousand, five thousand pound, however big they are, um, rhino just comes padding down to like a puppy, and. He comes up and we get to pet him and rub his horn and all that kind of stuff and feed him. It was really cool. And then um, we pull in this other area and they start handing us um, eucalyptus limbs, whatever, and these 
giraffe come up. So we got to feed giraffe um, from the back of the truck. And, you know, I got videos, footage of it. I handed my phone to other people where my daughter and I were feeding it. It was so cool. And by the time we were done with all that, you know, we went to Disneyland and a couple other places, whatever. But then I showed her where I grew up. I showed her where her mom grew up, showed the schools we went to, showed her our stomping grounds and all that kind of stuff. And then I introduced her to my friends, the people I had grown up with, people that are like brothers and sisters to me. And she got to see me instead of being dad as just a person. And so that was even better when it came to how we interacted and related. But, um, you know, then I moved back to Texas and everything kind of got squirrely and now I'm happier. But um, I, I guess that's kind of the, like the, the end of the story. The last thing is that you told me that we were going to talk about this. And, and so I've actually been reworking my website. Hopefully by the time this airs, my website will be updated. I'll have the information for my notation system up. That's actually where I wanted to go because we kind of glossed over it earlier with uh, you know DMW combatives and your notation system. So can we explore that briefly? Just, you know, what is that notation system and how does that make your teaching method unique? Okay. Um, well, so from a, from a mechanical point of view, the material and the way that I move is it, it's, I get my foundation, my, my Kempo foundation of how to understand things from Scott Higgins in the sense that, you know, he's the one that exposed me to it. Greg Hildebrand was my primary uh, um, Kempo teacher for years. Um, Greg and I had a, some hiccups along the road and, you know, stuff like that. And then the way that I move is, you know, I utilize the timing patterns that Mr. Mills has kind of highlighted that were always in the system, but he's really highlighted with the way he, the, the, the AKKI stuff moves. I don't belong to the group and I haven't in God since 2007. So it's been, it's been a minute. But um, I, that's that's kind of the way I move. But again, the way this thing was developed was because of um, learning material that hadn't been written out yet. Because Kempo is famous for having journals, and so by having journals, um, you can read and you can read everything. So I'm rewriting my journals that based off the way I move, which is you know how I do things and the way I teach and whatnot. Um, and that's that's kind of another a, a branch topic to this one, but to, to with the notation system itself, it works off the concept of uh, syntax, and syntax is how you write words, how you write words in a sentence, whatever. Um, and basically, you know, you got prefix, suffix, you know, inserts like that with what we talk about with Kempo. But what I utilize is direction, method, and weapon. And so, and then hopefully, again, I'll have the web, the the, the I'll have images and stuff up on my webpage. It'll show you how this stuff works. And I'll, I'll mention Rocketbook because I'm going to get involved with them to a certain degree, which is really cool. That's a, that's stellar. But um, anyway, so the way it works is that if you can picture in your mind 11 rows, you know, one, one on top of two, three, four, and then there's columns that start with left arm. The next column is left leg. Then it goes right leg right arm and then stance and what i do is so direction method weapon so each move so for delayed sword there's movements that happen in delayed sword so you've got the first move is a combination of things one 
you are pinning down their hand while you're also stepping back with your left foot and then you're doing an inward block to the forearm with the right with your right arm and then you end up in a neutral bow stance and so that's the first move now the second move I don't do it this way I haven't done it this way in a long time when we were learning delayed sword I learned originally the delayed sword where you you block and then you pivot your hips and you kick to the groin uh, one of the things that I thought Mr. Mills did better in the way that his way of doing things the way of teaching made more sense to me was that after the inward block, you kick to the inside of the leg. So instead of trying to shift again, you're rotating to, you know, counterclockwise and you're settling to your left. And then as that arm comes down, that leg comes up and catches up underneath the leg and opens the guy up. But so that's the first move. And the second move, in this case, you would then show that you are, um, your left arm doesn't do anything. It's still pinning. Your left leg is going to stay where it's at. Your right leg is going to shift, and it's going to go into the cat stance. So that would get a little notation. And then it's going to kick, and then when you go to land, you're, you know, there's a third move. You're chopping with the arm. So I can capture that with symbols that you don't have to speak English. You don't even have to read English in order to understand it. And so the chart has an area where you have the um, – the the notation itself and there is a, a box area that's got a silhouette and so for each of the lines that you're doing each of the rows you're doing you would put a, a certain you put the number you know one two three four whatever move and you would circle it and you would draw a line onto the silhouette or what point you're making contact on and my hope is that now with like we were talking about before we kicked this off i've got an iphone now which is smarter and dumber at the same time and I just ordered a new um, Apple Airbook or MacBook, MacBook Air. Yeah, I've been, I've been a PC guy all my life. And so Scott Higgins reached out to me and said, hey, you know, if you're looking at doing this, then, you know, you should get a MacBook Air. And they got them at Costco for 950 bucks, and they're using the M1 processor, which is what they use in the phones. The thing's scary fast, scary smart, and it's cheap relative to what some of its big brothers are. So I actually went into got a Costco membership and bought one of those. And so I'll be, I'm going to be making a YouTube channel that is going to allow me to um, to, to show everyone what this is. Because I gave out books. I gave out 100 books when I was at the Internationals in 2007. And then in 2012, I showed, them, I showed on the map and I showed up on a big old group of people. I hit so there was 80, 50... 30 so I've probably taught two or 300 people over the course of two days at the internationals in 2012 and then um you know my students have have some of them use some of them don't you know because I just kind of it's it's kind of hit and miss because it's like I wanted to have booklets but the booklets became expensive so I was having a hard time because the way that okay the way that I want the system to work and this will be the first time it's being told, I guess, publicly again. So it'd be the third time. But the way it originally was meant to be done is that the instructor would have a big board on his wall. And then the students would have a white book that's spiral bound. And this is where they're like, this is where they make the notes. And then they'd also get a color, colored version. This is where they'd make their archival notes. So what happens is the instructor would go and put up on the wall what he's going to teach. 
all the moves, all the principal theories, concepts, whatever thing, whatever notes he either already has up there or as they're, as they're teaching, they can put this stuff up there. And then the um, students would learn the technique, and then they would go and they'd take their little white book out of their, their key bag or whatever, and they would copy down what's up on the wall. And then they would go home, and I learned when you were writing notation or when you're writing notes that it's always good to take the notes you're doing and then rewrite them because it helps you ingrain and memorize what it is you learned. So the intent is they take the white book notes and they copy them into the yellow book notes or the orange or purple, whatever belt length they are. And that way they have a clean copy of what the, the motion and everything and all the pertinent information it is. And what that does is that allows them to have something so that when they're done, they can practice. They can in turn have a board at their house that I would make available. And then they could copy, they could take their little notes, they could put that up on their wall. So now they're working off the wall instead of like I learned trying to learn techniques and looking down into the damn journals, you know, that's sitting next to me on a chair trying to read a paragraph of what my foot's supposed to do next. And so the intent was that would be the way it works. So, you know, I would make a little bit of money for the effort energy I've done to develop it. Then the schools would make a little bit of money because they would be in turn selling it to the students. The students benefit from it because they have a better way to, understand the material because some people are visual some people are auditory some people are tactile you know again everyone learns differently this is just another way to learn and something has kind of come up since you and i were talking there's a product that had come out a year or two ago that i got involved with their kickstarter it was called rocket book now i don't get paid any money by these people and i'm only affiliated with them because i talked to the guy the other day but I, i don't i don't benefit from this in any way shape or form at this point um, so what it, the, what it is is they have a free app and they have um, books that you can buy that are notebooks but they have like a reusable paper and so they use these book, these pens made by this? it's made by Pilot and they're called Friction F-R-I-X-I-O-N and they're basically like a heat sensitive ink so you can write on them and you can wipe them you can erase them on normal paper but in the books they say you should use them like a wet rag or whatever and wipe them clean but you can so you can reuse the paper and stuff i thought that was cool so i'm like hey i need to reach out to these people and so instead of trying to get in the in the in the business of selling booklets i can get rocket book to print these things because they're starting to make other templates for people so they would be able to sell the books and they're making the money and i'm just saying hey this is who you should go see but then they um sent out emails not too long ago and they they've made several templates that are free to use. So the app itself is free to use. The um, templates you can get are free to use. And this is where it gets really cool. This is where the uh, intellectual property of Rocketbook is brilliant, is that there's one, two, three, four, five, six. There's seven symbols at the bottom along with one of those little like, I don't know what they're called, like the little boxes that have like the little digital black dots. You know what I mean? It's not a URL, but it, Okay, and I don't remember I don't remember what they're called right now, but oh, you're it's talking got about one the of QR those. readers. Yes. So it's got a QR code in the bottom, and it's got um, seven different spots. So the intent is, you can write these notes down, and you take the phone, take your phone, and open up the app, and you can save this to the cloud in one of seven locations that you choose. Like if you have an iCloud account, or if you have a Google. Um, Google Drive account. 
so that that way you can you know you can write notes you can save them and put them up into the archive and they're even uh, they've got an OCR to them so they can actually even read your writing so they'll actually get you a transcribe of what you wrote which is just brilliant um, but I don't want to get in sideways with these people I don't want to get litigation or going to get sued for using their stuff so I reached out and said hey you sent me or you sent me an email that says you offer these free pages with your free app that you can in turn use and you can put your own stuff on it and you can edit it yourself and you can use them for yourself. This is what I want to do. Can I do it? And so I sent um, an old copy, like I screenshot my webpage because I had a webpage for this up for years and then it finally I let it just lapse. So I still have all the documents. It's in my web account, my webpage account, but it's not live anymore. I used to have a webpage called dmwsystems.com and I may relaunch that or it may just be part of Kempo Consulting. I'm not sure. But um, again, the intent is now is that instead of trying to sell the books, I'm going to make available for purchase so I can help pay for my college, the college debt my, I got with my daughter, whatever. So um, two size posters. One size poster is going to be four foot by three foot, which is what I use now. And then I'll make one that's two foot by three foot for like the students. They can use it and they can put them at home. But the intent is the same is that a school would get into the program by getting one of the boards and then they would, you know, take the time to translate their system into the notation system. They would then, when they're going to teach class, they could mark up on the board and then the students would have the free app on their phones because most of all the kids have phones now. They could come up and they could take a picture of the image because the, the, the rocket book came up with um, the pages, but they also came up with these things called um, beacons. And what the beacons are is a brilliant idea. There are these orange triangles that you would sit on the corners of your whiteboard that it takes and it'll recognize that. So you can now take a screenshot of your whiteboard and it'll automatically save it to you know, these different spots, which is just really cool. Dude, there's so much I mean, potential that if this notation system is that easy to use, that could be used across any discipline you wanted. Oh, for sure. Well, again, when we were talking, when you were talking with Sullivan. This is this is you know it could be cool if it was for anything, but it's really for the striking arts. It, you, I don't see you could use it for like jujitsu or aikido or judo. I mean, maybe for judo, but again, it's one of those things where and you know boxing's jab, cross, hook, uppercut. You get dirty boxing, you start getting the headbutts and elbows and stuff like that. But for the, for any of the striking arts, this is kind of where this goes. You know, you know. The, any of the Japanese, the Okinawan styles of karate or whatever, the American styles of karate for that matter, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but then what happens is you can go take pictures of this. And this is where it's cool. Once you, again, when you take your picture of it and you go home and then you copy it onto your clean copy, you take that copy to your teacher and now you've shown your teacher, hey, these are the techniques that I've gotten. Now this is how you kind of set up for, you know, review or for test. So when you've got all the techniques and they sign off on your little notepad, on your, on your notebook, on your colored archival copy, once you've got all the signatures you need, now you're you know you're ready to go test because you should have it by now. And they've signed off for like, you know, you don't want you don't want to test your students for failure, but you don't guarantee them a belt just because they show up for a test. But um, I talked with one of the guys from Rocketbook the other day, and he said that he likes what I was doing and he thinks it's great. I took off the, the identifiers. I put beacons and the little. I made a little copy of their logo on my on my chart. So in the corners of my of my instructor board are these 
triangles that are off in the corners, and that's where you would put the beacons that you would get from Rocketbook. And that would allow you – so you, you'd have to go to Rocketbook, you'd buy the beacon, and then you could use their free app, and then you could take the images and you load them up onto your particular you know, cloud drive. And then I'm going to make freely available my notation pages um, so that that way – It'll just be something to download because it'd be if I sold them in booklets, it'd be cool. But then I couldn't use the Rocket Book technology because they told me that as long as I'm giving it out free, then I'm good to go. And you know, I don't, I'm not gonna have any problems with their intellectual property, whatever. And my intent for this, when I first started this, this was just a thesis. This was just let me say it this way, and this will maybe make people understand my perspective on life a little bit better. I haven't had a standard school experience since I was a purple belt. And even then, so, I mean, yellow belt, I was going to a Kempo school, orange belt, we were going to a Kempo school. By purple belt, I was just popping around with Scott, whether it is his house or at someone else's school. And then I moved to court and then I moved to Houston and I traveled from Houston to Corpus twice a month for two and a half years. But I was getting six days, like I said, six days a week instead of six days a month. So I haven't gone to like a, traditional Kempo school where I lined up every day and I had a big, huge group of, you know, contemporary students since 95. I mean, I'm, I'm not self-taught because I've had some really good teachers, but I have not had like the experience that maybe you had where you went to a school, a Kempo school for years or, you know, the, the karate connection guys like you or whatever else will like Joey will understand the distance kind of thing. But the people that have, you know, grown up in the Pasadena school or the Santa Monica school or the, the Whittier school or the the Dallas school or the Fort Myers, Florida school, whatever, wherever the school is, they wouldn't understand what it was like to be on your own. And that's kind of how this all got developed because I started teaching not because I wanted to be a teacher per se. I was raised by cops and school teachers and that's, you know, I should have been a high school science teacher. That's probably what I would have been good at. But um, I started teaching because I needed bodies to hit. And it's not very often you're going to find someone who's going to let you know, full-grown man that's going to let you hit them unless they're going to try to hit you back. So you say, hey, I'm going to teach you karate. Oh, you can kick the shit out of me. and then, You're going to teach me karate? Okay, cool. Here's my arm. And, you know, it's a little different that way. Um, but the notation system will be – um, I'll sell a smaller poster and a bigger poster, and then I'll have a PDF that you can download that will be um, the um, the charts. And on on the actual notation pages, there's there's going to be two variants. One you're going to have to get from me, and that's going to be the symbols are going to have like actually an identifier, and that's I guess my way of monetizing it. And before anyone says I'm a sellout, you know what I. I got bills to pay. I've been laid off for six months, five months. So, you know, people still have to eat. But the, the yeah, but even then, it's, you're still providing stuff that's your intellectual property. So, you know, it is what it is. Sure. No, for sure. No, I, I'm not apologizing for it. It's just, you know, one of those things where, you know, there's a couple of people that I highly respect. Ed Parker Jr. is one of them. And he looked at this and he said, you know, you're, my dad would have put this in the system. I mean, and wow, I was just like, crap. So um, anyway, so on the, the notation pages that I will make available for free, it's going to have all the symbols. And the, even the intent with this is that it's meant to have flexibility. It's meant for you to modify it as you need. It's not 
this is how you work it. This is how I work it. You know, you may you may add more symbols because there's like other kicks that I don't use. And I've got like for example, again I'm sorry I'm rambling, but I've got um, foot maneuvers. There's one through zero, so one through ten. So there's ten foot maneuvers. You've got you know step back, step step through, crossovers, you know up to circle, that kind of thing. You've got for blocks, you've got upward, downward, inward, outward, outward, extended, inward, downward, palm up, downward, inward, downward, palm down, push down. You've got, you know, got upper parry, inward parry, outward parry, waiter's tray parry, downward parry, and you've got um, crane parry, shape of crane. That's kind of like a specialized thing. For stances, you've got a forward, a neutral bow, a forward bow, a reverse bow, a wide kneel, a close kneel a cat, a um, horse dance, a fighting horse, a twist, and a rotating twist. For kicks, you've got um, a knee, a shin, a heel, an instep, a roundhouse kick, a side kick. Now I've added, uh, okay, what else have I done? I've got scoops. I've got um, crescent kicks for um, elbows. So I've got inward, outward, upward, downward, backward, collapsing, flapping. And there's still, you know, spots that will allow you to have some of your own. So, it, you know, you can still add to it and modify it as you can or as you need to. And that was the intent to always make it so that it was flexible. The shape of the boxes where you're putting in the movements are not just rectangles. They're kind of sprawled out hexagons. And that way you can see timing. So you can have if your right arm and your left arm are going to do something that's on the same move, but is at different timings of effort, you can put one on the left and one on the right. So you can even show timing within how the writing is done. I mean, it's one of those things where it's really cool. I when I when I finally was done with this, I looked back and I was like, wow, that's killer. That I mean, I was impressed with myself because. I got in this this mode and just started going, and then as I started to progress to it, it was like it just got easier, and it all just flooded out. And I haven't really done a whole lot graphically or whatever since. Once I kind of made this, I spent the last several years reworking what I teach, how I teach, why I teach it. Um, I teach ten belts or ten techniques per belt, um, but the intent is like so: five swords. Five stars works great on the inside of a um, of a right roundhouse punch. Everyone will talk about how they should work it on both sides, but not very many people work it on the inside of a left. But it works. All you got to do is practice. And then Mr. Mills has a technique that's basically five swords five swords ish. I don't remember what it was called, but it's for a straight left punch. So you're on the outside of the guy's arm. And you're basically doing five swords. So the way I teach things is that I'll teach you. The inside of the right, then we'll work on the inside of the left, and then we're going to do on the outside of the right and the outside of the left. So you're going to get the same motion you can apply in four different situations. And so I do 10 for yellow, 10 for orange, 10 for purple, 10 for blue, 10 for green, brown belt. Um, I expect you guys to, or I expect them to take. Um, techniques that they've already learned and do them on the opposite side, like, and they're going to have to analyze them and break them down. So instead of, you know, maybe they've made the effort to play with them, but now they have to show proficiency 
and and they and they get to choose the techniques. I don't care which ones, whichever ones sing to them, because you know five swords sings to almost everybody, but there's other techniques that sing to some people and just other people hate. And then at second brown, um, they're expected to take you know same number of techniques now. I think it's twenty. Uh, for for brown belt, but then they have to turn them into offensive techniques. And how do they how do they take what they've learned and how to make them as entries? And how to instead of waiting for the guy to throw a punch or a kick or whatever else, how do you go get the guy? And then when we start you know working black belt material, one of the things I want to work on is third person protection. So someone's got a hold of your you know your spouse, your girlfriend, your your, your child. How do you do when they've got them in a headlock? How do you deal with them without tweaking the person that is being held that kind of thing i think that is that may be where i want to go next i like it because i've been i've been i've been driving my own training um i met you i've never met you personally never met you you know in person or physically i met you through um jay creel who was in the group with me and then we all i left way before he did and then he decided he wanted to put this group together and it was such a silly name. I'm only even bother to bring it up, but it was such a goofball name what he called it. But the intent was that we were going to do kind of a peer review. So it wasn't an association where we all had to pay dues, but it was a peer review where, you know, if we wanted to promote, like there's no one that could really promote me with the material sequencing I'm doing that's outside of the group I was in because they don't know if I'm doing it right or not. You know, I mean, you would be able to, as a, as a good Kempo black belt, you'd see various principles and concepts, you know, being utilized, but not whether I'm, I did the sequence and all that kind of stuff, right. And what I was trying to, what I was trying to get across. Right. Right. So the intent was we would have a group where we would peer review and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't promote without having someone else sign off. And, you know, and this goes, you know, for people that are going to look at math or whatever with my fifth. I mean, I never wore a fourth. You know, I looked at how many people I knew that were in Kempo and what their, how much time they spent in each belt level, whatever. Like Scott Higgins, he spent 14 years in a fifth or something like that. I, you'd have to talk to Scott. And, you know, Scott would be someone I would, if, if you wanted to interview someone, Scott, Scott Higgins has got a lot. He's got stories. <laughs> we are open to anybody um, of any lineage. If you'd love to recommend somebody, please pass along my details. Okay. Um, but so, you know, having talked to Scott and then Edmund and then some of my black belt students that are black belts and other systems or whatever, that's where, you know, I've been a black belt for 14 years and, you know, fine. And you know, anyone want to, to, you know, have a problem with that, come take it off. Uh, you know, it's just a belt. I mean, I put it on today for the first time in probably four years because I never wore belt. I mean, we. I mean, I teach out of a garage. We're wearing gi pants and sweatshirts in the wintertime or gi jackets. The summertime is where we're wearing, you know, trunks and t-shirts. It's just, I mean, and I and I stopped going to Kempo functions just because, you know, everyone's like, well, you know, with owl because my my crest is an owl. Um. One of my students and I were talking, and he's much better artistically than I am, but I knew what I wanted. And he, I told him what I wanted, and he came back with this, I'm like, yes. And so I wear a, the owl, a barn owl is my crest patch because, you know, from a, you know, a tiger dragon motif, I'm kind of over that. Um, 
barn owls are found on every continent except Antarctica. Um, barn owls are basically um, owls are considered, you know, by most cultures to have some level of wisdom. They are, you know, predators as well as, you know, symbols of knowledge. So it seemed to me that would be the way to go. And so that's kind of what I did. And that's kind of where I'm at now. So um, the notation thing ties into what I do because Mr. Mills created uh, an awareness of timing patterns. And there are certain patterns that are just prevalent through the material that Mr. Parker did. And I mean, Scott's, you know, he can rattle them off because, you know, and there's a scene, okay, there's a scene in The Perfect Weapon where um, Jeff is in the, you know, in the fight scene in the bar. And he grabs this guy by the, the chest and he goes, and he shakes him and goes, Who killed Kim? And he goes, Blap. And that's basically what I would call timing pattern one. It's an in, in, and out. And he hits this guy in the face. Blap. And so, I mean, it's, it shows that the material, the, the timing patterns have always been there in, within the system, but it's a matter of how you articulate your motion and how you, how you time it. You know, you're going timing for in, emphasis, timing for speed, timing for effect, you know timing for sound i mean whatever so it's um hopefully like i said and i'm rambling again hopefully i'll have my website up in the next week or so it'll be updated it'll show you know better stuff with regards to what this notation system is the the campus stuff is will come and i'll have it and it'll say who i am or where i'm from where i live or whatever but it's going to show pages of that and if I can figure out how to set up the download I'll have it set up so you can download these these charts or these um these pages and I mean it should be able to something people can figure out without having the uh, the symbol page I'll work through that I'm not sure how I want to monetize that if I'm going to maybe do a short video or something on how to use it well yeah and that's where that's why the iPhone so but so this is where, you know, I've been planning on doing this stuff and I'm progressing through. I started, you know, getting to the point where all my students started showing back up again. But I just got a job offer and I'm going to be working three weeks a month in. Um, so I live in um, Southwest Houston and I'm going to be in. God, where is that? It is Martinez, California. I'm going to be trying to do like video seminars, video training with my students because they're going to be training here. Um, but again, I'm not sure how, I mean, it's changed what my, it's changed how things are going to be because I'm not sure how to get everything loaded up yet. And I'm not sure if the notation thing is going to get put on hold again because of how my world's being modified, but it's a good company and, um, I'll be for 50 to 60 hours a week there. And then when I'm back in town, I'll be 40. So I'll have enough time to get stuff done around my house or whatever. And then it's a company that, you know, I'd like to stay with. I've only worked for just a handful of companies over, you know, 30 years. And a lot of the people that left the company I worked for went to this one. So I know a lot of people. So it's, right on. you know, for me, it's a good thing. It's just, I'm not sure, you know, if I was going to be kicking back on unemployment, like I've been since December 1st, then I would have the time to, start shooting videos. I've had bodies to hit to start doing demonstrations and explanations, but it may very well might be me in a hotel room with a poster board. I don't know. And I'm not sure if that's how I want to show this stuff yet, but um, 
I, I, I know for sure that I'm going to have these notation pages put up. And if people download the Rocketbook app for free and can figure out through either conversations with me or maybe something I'll put up on, I'll have a write-up about how it works uh, on my page, and then they can go from there. But, again, my world is in a state of flux, so, you know, feeding myself and getting back to normal has to be first. Oh, absolutely. All right, so, Mr. McCord, I absolutely want to thank you for giving me so much of your time and sharing your story with us. There was a whole lot of cool pieces in there that, that – you know, we went on a rabbit trail over here, and that brought us back towards that center of your story, and then a rabbit trail over here, and came back towards the center of the story. And it's a really cool way to intersperse all that stuff you've done for you know in your entire training history since you were a kid. Knowing that now you have all these new products that are going to be coming out, if people are interested in those products or they want to get a hold of you, how do they do that? Well, rabbit trail. That yeah, I'm definitely I scroll a lot. Um, you know, talking about something with squirrel and just go off. But um, my website is kinpoconsulting.com. Um, it has my phone number on there and my email. It doesn't have a picture of me. And hopefully by the time this airs, I will have updated the, um, the website. And so my hope is that I will have um, a section on the Kenpo stuff and, you know, what I do or whatever, some of the stuff we talk about here. But then also I'll have a section on – the notation system and like i said earlier i'm going to make available my notation pages that use the rocketbook technology and the ip for free and you know if you need if before we can get through all this if it's something you're interested in reach out to me and um we'll i'll work on getting you a poster um the posters there's two sizes that i'm looking at doing right now they're going to be three foot by four foot and they're going to be two foot by three foot they're going to be laminated so you can use dry erase marks on them. Um, I've had mine posted up onto like what they call gator board, which is like a backing. But from a shipping point of view, it's basically going to come out as a roll. And it's all, it's all black and white. Uh, if you wanted a color version, we could do that. And I can you know, figure out what that costs because it's not necessarily cheap to print and, and laminate you know, three by four. But um, kempoconsulting.com, like I said, my number, my phone number will be on there. Um, I'm happy to talk to anybody, understand that I've got a new iPhone and you're not in my contact list. It automatically goes straight to voicemail and says, you know, whatever. So if you call and you don't leave a message, I think you're a bot. So I'll probably block you. But if you call and leave a voicemail, you know, I'll give you a call back as soon as I can and we can talk about it. Um, again, uh, I don't get paid by Rocketbook and I don't make any money from them. Um, but I think it's a really cool product, and you have the ability. I'll have my pages, and I'll hopefully have also the um, the blank pages that they offer, so you can download and you can do your own stuff. I mean, it's it's really cool. That's just, I mean, technology is cool. You know, it's like I was wanting to do an app for this, but I didn't know how. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't want to pay the money for an app. But Rocketbook, it's a cool product. I mean. It's, it's if you haven't if you don't know what it is you look into it if you're using it you know what I mean if you know you know I guess is what I'm saying um, but again kempoconsulting.com and what else all right sounds good so my last piece for you here is really I guess the only question I'm going to ask you throughout this entire thing uh, <laughs> this show is basically at this point we're at 39 countries that have heard the show which wow. every time I say that is just mind-boggling to me right but <laughs> 
I want you to think out, you know, this show is going to be, it's internet-based primarily. Uh, so I know we're getting repeated through, I can't even tell you how many different platforms we're on anymore because we keep getting added to new ones. I keep getting notifications like, oh, you're now on this platform, you're now on this platform. And that's, you know, that's cool. I, I don't know how that keeps ha- happening, but I'm just going to grum and roll with it. So the the show, as long as the internet's around, this show's going to be around, right? Because once you put something on the internet, you know, it's, it's out there. You know, you, you can go on the archive sites and see stuff from 1996 on the dawn of the internet days, right? So right. the idea that this, this show is going to be around, that it's going to outlive you, it's going to outlive me, it's going to outlive probably my grandkids, which is crazy to think about in, in and of itself. But knowing that, what message would you think you would like to share as far as, you know, benefits of training or what it's done for you or any of that kind of stuff? What message would you like, would you like to share to the world knowing that this thing's going to be out there pretty much forever? Well, you know, no pressure. Um, I talk a lot, as you guys have figured out, and however long this ends up being. I mean, it's been going for a while, but I, I guess it's like this. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you are a techno nerd or a knuckle dragger, whether you want to fight or whether you just want to do the the intellectual side of American Kempo, it's I think it's the best system. I mean, there's branches and there's variants, whatever, but I've seen things from South America. I've seen things from Africa. I've seen things from Europe. I, I've seen things, I've seen a lot of different stuff in my years. And if I found that I thought something that was better than American Kempo, I'd do it. Um, I don't wear my belt very much. And so, I mean, there's people that have, that are teaching every day and they've got their belts are all like white and ratty and whatever. And then they get new belts. And I mean, I, it doesn't get worn much. So I guess it's like this train, find out what you like, find out what resonates with you and train. Um, you're going to have to figure out what you want, how bad you want it, because no one's going to do it for you, and no one is going to step up and fight the fight that someone's throwing a punch at you. I mean, you may have someone come, come save you, but when someone's throwing a punch at you or someone's trying to hurt you with violence, it's only you. You know, it, you're going to have to learn how to deal with that. So, you know, American Kempo works for me. I've utilized it. I've made it work. I've put foot to ass on a couple occasions, and I know – that what I do works for me um, from a generational point of view or a training point of view. I'm probably, I'm probably somewhere. My girlfriend who's a school teacher and my um, daughter who is now um, graduated from college in child life, they've studied children. I'm probably ADD or ADHD or some crap like that if someone wanted to put a, a handle on it and Kempo's caused me to be analytical. It's caused me to be thoughtful. It's allowed me to understand something that, you know, I, I put a lot of effort in there. You don't get to where like one of my students asked me, I guess I'll say it this way. One of my students asked me what it would take. He wanted my black belt. He wanted, you know, he wanted to have the black belt that I have. Well, that is, you know, a brown belt in Robokai, it's years in Aikido, it's a second degree brown belt in the IKKA American Kempo by Ed Parker, it's um, a second black in the AKKI under Paul Mills Kempo, it is years and years and years of training in order to get, you know, all this stuff combined, which is what my first black belt was, which was 
you know, in 99. So it's been 22 years and there's still plenty to learn. And there's still people that can show me things and everyone puts their pants on. So no one's special, but you show, you show respect and deference to people that you believe deserve it. And like I said, in the beginning of this, you know, if I've used a first name for anyone when we're supposed to be, you know, official, whatever, I, you know, I respect all the people that I've mentioned. Um, so it would, you know, if you could take what I have said so far and put Mr. or Mrs. in front of it, that is the way it was meant to be said, but whatever you're going to do, do, and no one's going to do it for you. And if you've got an idea, run with it because the DMW notation system was in my head and I lost sleep. I had to get it out. And so I got it out and then I showed it to someone I respected. And he said that, yes, my dad would have taken this and put it in the American Kepo system. So, you know, if you come up with something cool, maybe they'll say that to you too. I don't know. Again, it sounds stupid to say, I I sound stupid when I talk like this, but you know, I, I get like this once in a while. And the simple fact is that, make an effort follow what you're going to do if you find something better do it if you want to train train if you don't that's fine too but you know figure out what you like and and do it because i'm 52 years old now and that that was a blink i was 22 23 years old and wow now it's you know gray hair (laughs) and there's a lot of people that are you know icons in our industry and in our art that have now passed or will pass, you know, at some point in the future and spend time with your teacher. That's across every art too. Yeah. Spend time with your teacher, get knowledge, understand where they came from, what, what drives them, what makes them, what makes them tick, why they chose what they chose, why they teach what they teach. You know, the, the idea of Parker coming from Hawaii, being Hawaiian, talk story. I mean, one of the coolest things I can think of is to, you know, what I'm planning on doing for my school. When I get my school open, one of the things we're going to do is at least one Friday a month, we're going to have Friday night line. Everyone's going to show up. It's going to be a family thing. The goal is not to teach anything. The goal is to get out there and bang and show your friends what you're doing, show your, your parents, your supporters, what you're learning. And then afterwards we'll have, you know, barbecue, we'll have fire pit, we'll talk story. And just kind of, you know, hang out and, you know, talk story is the best way I can describe it. I love it. Because um, it's what we do. I just, I appreciate the, the, the platform. It's cool. I mean, maybe three or four people will listen. <laughs> uh, judging by the download counts, I'm going to tell you it's a lot more than that. Well, cool. And, you know, if, if, you're, if someone that didn't know how to get a hold of me or didn't know who I was when we were doing this, and you hear this, reach out, KempoConsulting.com. You know, it's, you know, you call me, leave a message, and I will call you back. I've got an international plan, I think. If I don't, I'll add it, <laughs> so that way I can talk to people. But, um, I, again, that's, that's where I'm at. So, cool. Thanks for your time. Mr. McCord, thank you so much, man. You gave me well over two hours of your time today, close to three. Uh, it's been a blast sure. having this chat, and I'm looking forward to getting this show edited and ready to rock. <laughs> I talk a lot. I said that in the beginning. <laughs> it's all good. That's what we're here for. You got to tell stories, right? Yeah, well, it's all good. I will talk to you soon. All righty. 
Episode 11 of Season 2 is in the books, folks. We are approaching the mid-season break here after Episode 13. We'll be taking a short break to record the rest of Season 2 and be back with you before you know it. I'm extremely stoked to get our first female martial artist represented on our show, and we'll be kicking off Part 2 of Season 2 with some truly amazing women. Our listeners are just going to love hearing their stories. Can't name drop them just yet, but a little birdie told me we're going to have a teaser or two out in the interim while we're on hiatus. So you just have to enjoy catching up on Season 1 and listening to the first half of Season 2 in the meantime. Season 1 is still available at all major podcast platforms. Here's my cheap plug for ratings. The feedback helps us move up the charts in the podcast world, and the five-star ratings open doors. Help us out and let us know what you think. We greatly appreciate the feedback. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Audible, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Alexa, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, Bullhorn, the podcast app, and of course, as always, our host Podbean as well. Find us at www.artistofmotion.com. Our Facebook page is Artist of Motion. Twitter and Facebook, at AOM Podcast. Email pod at artistofmotion.com. Feel free to drop us a line, let you know what, let us know what you think, recommend a guest. If you'd like to be on the show yourself, let us know. We're open to anyone, any style, any lineage. It's all good. Shout out to Phil Maldonado and Fat Daddy Special for the rocking intro music. They're on iTunes and soon to be several other platforms and have resumed playing shows in Southern California. If you're a rock and roll and or blues fan, give them a listen. That's all for this week. I'm Steve Zalazowski. Catch you next time on the Artist of Motion podcast.